Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. And as always, remember that with yoga philosophy, it's only true insofar as it is true for you. So this is a philosophy that cares more about your personal direct experiences with these ideas than the ideas itself. So I invite you all at any point during today's discussion to stop me whenever I'm saying something that doesn't immediately. um, Ma'am, in. Yes. Hello. (laughs) So please feel free to say at any juncture, um, okay, that doesn't quite work for me. Or can you pause and explain that a different way? Or I haven't found this to be true in my own experience of consciousness in life. So please feel free and know that you have that option to stop and debate me on any point that I might make today. Remember the heart of Indian philosophy, or I should say yogic philosophy is debate is rigorous dialectic. Um, And so today, we're going to be talking about, um, or at least I'm going to be presenting to you three arguments that should prove to you in the immediacy of your own awareness, your true identity as Brahman or Atman or the self And the interesting thing is that should you grasp the insight that is contained in these arguments, the promise scripturally is that you should be immediately awakened. Seems like a pretty grandiose statement and a pretty big promise. I'm a big fan of big promises, setting up some high standards for us today. Um, But my promise to you today and the promise of these arguments is that Once you grasp them, it has the effect of giving you a spontaneous insight. We call this in Japanese Zen traditions, satori, instant awakening. Um, In other traditions, it's called atma bodha, realization of the self, or buddhahood, which is to realize your own innate buddha nature. In some traditions, it's called brahma jnana, which means knowledge of the all or knowledge of the absolute. So these arguments that I will present to you today, there are three of them, and each of them say the same thing in different ways so that you can kind of come at it from different angles. These arguments should, if they are properly grasped, give you the sense of Brahmagyana. Now, why is it possible for you to have Brahmagyana in a single argument? In fact, I'm going to go further and say that you can have self-realization in this very next breath that you are taking. This is a remarkable idea. The idea that enlightenment is as close to you as your next breath. And you are separated from it only insofar as you do not know that you have it. The fundamental basis of this claim is that you already are at your core enlightened. It is your fundamental nature, is what you've always been, what you are now, and what you always will be, enlightened. So spirituality is not the effort of healing or growing or making you better. 
the obsession in our culture with healing, with growing, with improving is perhaps the last ditch attempt of the ego to maintain perpetuity of self. I mean, think about it, right? Like the most egoic actions of humanity, you know, um, like war, to take other people's land, to build big monuments, to leave a legacy. All these are aimed at um, fighting our fear of death by creating a self that perpetuates through the aeons. And we know the futility of such a thing. Like in Shelley's poem, Ozymandias Rex, right? The, the crumbled statue of a long forgotten king. The idea that we can live forever is promised in Hatha Yoga, but only as a means to an end. So you only build spiritual skills to remember what you always were. The idea that there is some kind of XP bar in the game of spirituality that you need to fill with X amount of asana, pranayama, and meditation is ridiculous. The idea that you are going somewhere or progressing somewhere um, and that somewhere is your enlightenment is ridiculous. Because to set up these... Um, you know, timelines to say in 10 years, I'll, you know, I'll go to a monastery up in Tibet, I'll meditate for 10 years and in 10 years time, I'll have it, you know, um, or I'll do asana for five hours every day and then next month I'll have it. These are all absurd ideas because what we're talking about today is not something that you can have because it's something that you are. This is why the promise that these arguments alone are enough to give you the insight. So in the tradition that I will be talking to you about today, insight is more important than anything. And it's only one insight. All right. So another thing I wanted to add is that all the asana, pranayama, and mudra aren't really seen as tools to become spiritual. Rather, they're seen as expressions of a fundamental spirituality. So as you know, asana before the 12th century um, referenced a meditative seat. And maybe not even that, you know, like in Patanjali Yoga Sutra, asana is referencing a certain way to sit when you're meditating. But in Tantra, which is a 10th century tradition, which I'm going to talk a lot about today, asana comes to mean the lotus seat that you visualize in your meditation. You know, the seat that your deity sits in, the throne of consciousness. So what we today consider asana, we often attribute to um, a mysterious school known as the Nath school of yoga that flourished somewhere around the early 12th century um, with figures known as like Matsyendra Natha and Gorakshanath. And the idea is that these fellows in this underground indie rock movement known as Hatha Yoga invented 84 uh, poses. And these poses you know today as your Mayurasan, Dandasan, poses that you might practice in your yoga class. But even before those 84 poses, there was its predecessor, which as the um, amazing scholar Christopher Harish Williams argues in his book, Tantra Illuminated. Um, and of course, I'll give you a sources cited at the end of this talk. But as this scholar, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the Nats, they're actually known, they were actual people, legendarily, and they're known now as disembodied spirits that continue to roam the universe. So anytime you practice Hatha Yoga, it puts you in touch with these um, ascended masters, if you will. So it's kind of interesting because in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, it describes the Nats, like Matsyendra Natha and Gorakshanath, as 
currently existing out there in the universe, roaming and teaching. You know, it's interesting. Yes, wonderful point, Nasrin. But uh, even before the Nats, there was a tradition in Tantra um, wherein a Tantric ceremony would be adjourned. And we won't get into the details of what the ceremony looked like. It was, it's very ins- exciting and inspiring. But essentially, at the culmination of the ceremony, you would um, be, uh, let's say, infused with the Holy Ghost, so to speak. You'd be filled with a spiritual radiance and you would sometimes come into spontaneous enlightenment. When people entered these states of Sahaja Samadhi or spontaneous enlightenment, they would often break out into a dance. These dance moves known as karanas were actually the blueprint for asana. Do you see this reversal? You might have thought that asana is a tool to become spiritual, but now I am telling you that asana were spontaneous movements made by spiritual people or people who were already enlightened. A mudra today is uh, kind of understood as a hand gesture. Yeah, and today I'm gonna give you evidence, evidence for why all this exists, evidence for your inner divinity, evidence through philosophy, of course. So I'm sure you've heard of mudras, right? Like hand gestures. Gyan mudra, dhyan mudra, you know, abhaya mudra, all that stuff. A mudra doesn't really mean hand gesture. It actually kind of means, it means seal, but it mostly means attitude. So a mudra can be an asana. A certain way of putting your body, maybe a headstand, is a mudra. You know, so the word mudra and asana can be interchangeable. But the idea I want to get across first is that all these mudra and all these asana come from a spiritually awakened state. Now we study them from the other side of the fence so we can use them as a doorway back into that state. You know, so this is a powerful idea. It tells you that you don't practice to become spiritual. You practice as an expression of the spirituality you already are. Now to get you to realize the spirituality that you already are, there are two steps. And that's what today's talk is going to be about. I'm going to explain to you um, in the next 40 minutes or so, if we can do it, um, what duality is and what non-duality is. And I'm going to propose to you now that duality is a necessary step to get to non-duality. So uh, Sarva Priyananda, Swami Sarva Priyananda talks about is the two steps to get to one method. You know, the two in one. It's your little coffee, three in one sachet, you know. So let's stir up this coffee now. Two steps to get to um, non-duality, which is the ultimate experience of spirituality. One last thing to point out. If you study um, like the early 20th century, sorry, 19th century saints, like Ramakrishna or Ananda Maima, you will often see them break out into spontaneous mudra. You know, my favorite picture of Ramakrishna is him doing the rock and roll sign. It's actually the Appana mudra. It's a very powerful mudra of releasing, but he's standing like this. It's such a cool picture. I, I dare you to go and type in um, Ramakrishna, just Sri Ramakrishna on Google Images. One of the first pictures is, you know, is rock and roll sign, <laughs> 1890 something or 1860 something actually. Okay, so, you know, that's one thing to point out. So once you understand non-duality, it makes the understand, understanding of all religion quite accessible. So remember that in the Rig Veda, there is the line, my favorite line, which is uh, ekam sat 
Vipra Bahuddha Vadanti. Truth is one, those sages call it differently. The idea here then is once you realize this non-dual truth of who you are at the core of your being, the way in which we describe that non-dual experience um, can change. So we can describe it in terms of visio dei, the vision of God. We can describe it in terms of mystic union. Whatever words you use to describe it, because you have had that experience, you'll know what the mystics are talking about. So the Bible, the Quran, all these works become wonderful syncretic works because you see that they're all pointing to the same thing. So that's another thing to point out that non-dual awareness is essentially a syncretic universal awareness. It's the unity behind the diversity of not just religion, but also all form, all energetic experience. So let's talk about how to get there now. We'll start with Patanjali and dualism. So to understand non-duality, we must first understand dualism. Dualism is the way that most religions articulate their philosophy. And it goes like this. There are two worlds. There is some world that is pure, um, some world that is clean and holy and lofty, and another world that's kind of in a fallen state or a world that's different. In Christianity, it's called heaven or the kingdom, and this is called Babylon or the world. You know, so there's two worlds. And one of those worlds, the former, is known as a transcendental world, meaning it's kind of above and beyond, you know, and this world is known as the imminent natural or material world, the world that we find ourselves in. So almost all religions take for their starting point this predicament that you are in nature, but somehow you sense that there's more to life than what you see. Your innate philosophical tendency forces you to look at things and wonder if there's more to existence than, you know, just grubbing for money, climbing the corporate ladder, and then eventually dying, you know? Um, materialism or reductionism is the movement to reject the existence of this transcendental world. And transcendentalism is the movement to reject this material world. I'm going to explain to you why dualism is important and is helpful, but is ultimately a very harmful and backward idea with many harmful philosophical repercussions. Patanjali is a dualist. Plato is a dualist. And Descartes is a dualist. And I'm going to show you what that means now. And I'm after that going to show you why dualism fails or why this is a mistake. So a lot of you, I'm sure, have studied Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. The great sage Patanjali, and it was an incredible sage. I want to suggest to you that the Yoga Sutra functions better as a technical textbook for meditation than it does as a philosophical treatise. Because philosophically, it's all over the place, as you will soon see. But as a technical manual, you couldn't find a better one. It's so good at explaining the process of meditation um, and the process of you know, Raja Yoga or the yoga of concentration. But philosophically, here's what Patanjali proposes. There is this world and it is constantly in flux. It is known as Prakriti. And the word Prakriti, you know, might best be translated as flux. So this is a world of change, a world of perpetual change. Therein lies the rub. 
So the Buddha, who is probably a contemporary of Patanjali, maybe a little earlier than Patanjali, pointed out that a majority of our suffering has to do with the changing nature of the world. Anityam anityam sarva manityam, which is his famous line that translates to impermanent, impermanent, all is impermanent. So now the suffering that you encounter in life largely has to do with you chasing things that you think you need and running away from things that you think will harm you. Now, the problem is, even if you get what you want, after all that dogged, miserable grasping, once you get it, two things can happen. Either it changes, meaning it degrades, or it gets stolen, or it, you know, um, like, as, as all things decays and leaves you. Or the second thing that can happen is you change. So perhaps the thing doesn't change, but you change. So you no longer want it. So the irony is that after you get the first million dollars in the bank account, which was always your goal, it no longer satisfies you. You've now changed. You have higher tastes and now you need more money to support those new tastes. You know, so, um, you know, uh, this impermanence or inconstancy, you can call it inconstant, impermanent, perishable, changing nature of the world is also your nature as a body and as a mind. So your body is changing. It degenerates, it decays. The things that you used to enjoy, you no longer enjoy because your body's no longer able to enjoy them. So maybe you're not fit enough to hike or practice five hours of asana a day. You know, uh, your mood changes. So while something like reading under the... Uh, the tree in the afternoon was desirable. Now in the evening, after teaching four yoga classes back to back, the last thing you want to do is sit with Patanjali Yoga Sutra um, under the tree because your mood changed, your energy changed. Your mind is changing all the time. Um, yes, I just got a direct message from Nasrin. That's excellent. That's, that's exactly it. I'm going to address it in a little bit. Thank you, Nasrin. Stick around. I'll address it um, because it's very beautiful. Anyway, so um, the idea then is that because your body, your mind, and the world is changing, there is suffering. The question then is, in a world of change, in a world of flux, is there a thing that doesn't change? So you can think of this as kind of like a holy grail quest, right? And it was the quest that all the early Upanishadic philosophers, the first few Gnostics of India, were asking, like, in a world of change, what doesn't change? And Patanjali says, beyond Prakriti, note that I, know, I, I just lumped your mind and body into this phenomena, Prakriti. Beyond Prakriti, meaning beyond this world of form, beyond your mind and beyond your body, there was something. And that thing doesn't change. So it's transcendental, right? He's suggesting to you that beyond the world, there is a thing. He calls it Purusha, meaning spirit. And supposedly, you each have a purusha. You each have an individual spirit. And that purusha belongs to a different oversoul known as the vishesha purusha, meaning the first spirit or the, the mega spirit, the all, the ubermensch, I don't know, call it what you want. There is um, kind of a Jewish connection here, because in Jewish mysticism, we are seen as sparks, divine sparks that fall from the Ein Sof hour. Of course, the Ein Sof hour, which means limitless light, is a transcendental realm. And from it comes individual souls. And now the goal is to get you to realize that you are a divine spark and take you home to merge back into the Ein Sof hour. 
So there's this idea that once you know what you are, once you contact this Purusha or this divine spark, you kind of turn away from your mind, body, and the world. You know, um, I think it's called in Jewish, sorry, in, in the Bible, I think the Old Testament says, thou canst not look upon the face of God and live. You know, there's this idea that you just like merge, you vanish into the transcendental realm. So Patanjali then philosophically proposes these two things, Purusha and Prakriti. Now, Plato does the exact same thing. So for those of you who have been coming to my Thursday talks, we've been talking a lot about the tattva system and the quest for substances. And so pardon the repetition. I hope it's good review. But the Plato stuff, yes, Claire nods encouragingly at me. She's heard this piece quite a few times now. <laughs> but Plato talks about... Um, the realm of ideas and his transcendentalism takes as its Purusha a realm of forms, capital F. Um, and this is a realm where real things exist. And those things have a reflection that we see in our corrupted world of matter. So we're not actually seeing things as they are. We're seeing things as a kind of distorted reflection from another realm. This is kind of the underpinning of Plato's uh, allegory of the cave. And in Plato's allegory of a cave, you're sitting there, you're kind of strapped to your seat, looking at this shadow puppet. Yeah, right, exactly, Roxanne. And you're sitting there and you're looking at this like shadow puppet play on the, on the wall. And um, enlightenment is the ability to look away, realizing that all you're seeing is shadow light. Look away, walk out of the cave, leaving nature, right? And Plato proposes you can do this or at least Socrates teaches a method wherein you can bring your mind out of the cave of illusion. So you leave behind politics, you leave behind mind and body, and you enter this realm. Descartes has a similar idea. So notice how throughout Western and Eastern philosophy, there's this kind of recurring idea of mind and body, of heaven and earth, of transcendental and imminent. And there's always a kind of schism between the two. So what does Patanjali say? So Patanjali um, tells you that there is a way and the way to realize this being, this true being is through the path of Raja Yoga. I will describe it to you at the end of today's class. So here's how it works. I'm going to give you the arguments. Once you realize your true self, you don't need any of these lectures anymore. You're fine. You're on your own. But in the event that the insight doesn't happen, at the end of today's lectures, I'll give you some additional tools, <laughs> tools to integrate the insight, if you will. So like some bonus things. <laughs> so how does Patanjali propose that you do it? Patanjali proposes that you practice Raja Yoga, which is the practice of meditation and concentration. I'll explain the method later, but I want to suggest to you now that there's another way to understand Patanjali's realization. And we can do this through philosophical insight. Um, and welcome, Jess, welcome, welcome. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, Mikey. It's good to see as you pop in. Um, just wanted to say hello. Okay, so I'm gonna give you an argument now. The reason the argument works is because you don't need any amount of spiritual practice to have an insight, since this is what you already are. You just have to remember. So all it takes is one remembrance. Of course, once you remember, you can fall back asleep as often happens, but that's what all the spiritual practices are for. As one of my mentors says, remember faster that you are the master. And that's why we do these practices. It's a way of integrating our realization. So anyway, I'm gonna give you 
three arguments now. Each of them say the same thing, but they should prove to you that you are Purusha, not Prakriti. And by not Prakriti, I mean to say not your body or your mind. Do you see? Yes. So then it becomes muscle memory to like, remember this. Um, okay. So if I give you these arguments, what they will accomplish is they will show you that all the things you feared before no longer apply to you. Because as long as you think yourself to be this body, you're afraid of this body's sickness and death. There are real threats to this body since it exists in a world of change. If you take yourself to be your mind, which by the way is your personality, since what is a personality but an accumulation of thoughts? If you take yourself to be your mind, then there is a real threat. Since as the body dies, so too will the mind. And so too will your sense of self, your personality, and all of your attachments to your things and etc. So most of this suffering comes then from identification with mind and body. Most of us don't have any uh, reality beyond that, right? Like all we know to be real is the mind and the body. We've never had a glimpse of anything beyond that. Fortunately, all of you are here today because you've had such a glimpse. Whether it was during uh, artwork, you were making art and you fell into a state of complete mind and body forgetfulness and the spirit was flowing through you, what the Christians would call the Holy Ghost. Maybe you uh, practiced asana and you found yourself in a shavasana, corpse pose, and for a few sweet moments, completely absolved body and mind and tasted something that was so authentic and real and true that it immediately made you hungry for more. So you're all here learning this stuff because you have had perhaps several times a glimpse of the truth that you are about to hear in these three arguments. So it should feel like remembering, you know, it should feel like, um, wait, like kind of like, oh yeah, I know that. As again, we'll reference Plato. I don't remember if it's Phaedro. I think it's Phaedro. But in that text, Socrates shows a little boy that he already knows all the geometric truths. You know, that text, I think it's Phaedro. It's a good read because Socrates is trying to prove that learning is just remembering, you know. Now, if these arguments don't do it for you, if they don't create that feeling, I urge you to like debate them. So pause me and be like, no, that's not true because, and then we'll work it out. You know, so debate is a very important technique because we're using your mind to go beyond itself, if you will. So giving the benefit of the doubt that everyone here is only here because they've tasted what I'm about to present. Otherwise, all this stuff would make no sense. You wouldn't even be interested. It'd be boring to you. You'd be like, ah. uh, but your interest shows that there is um, going to be some recognition. So here we go. The three arguments to prove that you are not the mind and the body. By the way, this is only one of two parts. Once we complete this first step, we must do the second step of figuring out what our relationship is to the mind and body. It's only in the second step that you get non-duality. So let's do this now. The first step to duality, or at least to uh, transcending Prakriti. Here it is, the first argument of three. The first argument is known as Drig Drishya Viveka. And the argument goes like this. And some of you have heard it before. Helps to hear it over and over, actually. Um, because the method is Shravana, meaning listen to it. Mananas, think about it. Mananas, meaning the mind, consciously think about it. And the last one is Nididhyasana, which means internalize it. You know, so once you've heard it, 
You think about it, contemplate it, and then you become it. That's when knowledge becomes wisdom, you know? So it's good to hear it again. This is my apology for those of you who have heard this. I think about the fourth time now. <laughs> um, okay, here's the argument. Drig viveka, meaning the discrimination between the seer and the scene. Drig, uh, what is it? Uh, um, Okay, yeah, no, I'm forgetting the verse, but it's uh, rupam drishya lochanam drig, something like that. But it starts by saying the seer and the scene are two different things. The seer and the scene are two different things. Drig drishya viveka. Let's discriminate between these two things now. The seer and the scene. So the seer is what we call the subject and the scene is what we call the object. When I say drig and drishya, I don't just mean with the eyes. I mean any sort of sense perception. So the ears are the seer and the sound is the scene. The mouth is the seer and the strawberry is the scene or the taste of the strawberry. So you can use this process with any of your senses, your eight senses, you know, proprietary reception and all that stuff. You can use this with any of the eight senses. Uh, we'll just use seer to mean the eyes just for convenience. The seer and the scene are two different things meaning the subject is by definition different than the object. So if you take the sentence, I see a pot, grammatically, I and pot are different, yes? I is the subject, pot is the object. Here, you must remember that Patanjali is a grammatician. Before he taught yoga, he taught Sanskrit grammar. Isn't that interesting? So quite naturally, he's going to talk about things in terms of grammar and subject object. So take the sentence, I see a pot. That's the only sentence you need for, non, uh, for duality. I is the subject, pot is the, the object. So let's take the pot, yes? You're here, you are the seer, and let's take a pot, let's say this cup, and you're seeing the cup, so here's the object. I know that the seer and the scene are different. So I know by definition that I am not the cup, the cup is not me. Who am I? I am the eyes, right? I'm the eyes looking at the cup. Because the eyes are the seer and the cup is the scene awareness is on the side of the eyes. And where awareness is, there I am too. So haha, a play on that uh, quote from Matthew. Huh? So anyway, um, here I am, the eyes, here's the cup. So I am the scene, I am not the seer. I swear, I'm the seer, I'm not the scene. So this is obvious. You're separated from the world around you. The objects aren't you. You know this to be true, except for the person who's like really attached to their objects. For those people, this is already a powerful discovery, right? You know those people who drive the cars and if you hit them, you say, ah, you hit me. Or they use words that kind of connote that their stuff is them. So for those people, this is already a profound discovery <laughs> that they are not their stuff, you know? But most of you know that. Let's go further. So the eyes are the seer, the cup is the scene. Ah, but look, your mind can look at your eyes. So now your mind is the seer, the eyes are the scene. You can test this now, like just blink and you can notice the feeling of blinking. You know, you can notice as the mind what's going on in the eyes. Or if you have glasses and you take them off, you notice that the world has changed and you put them on, the sight has been restored. So you can like play with your sight in this way, making the sight or the eyes, the organ of the eyes, the object of some other subject. And that subject is your mind. So far, so good. This is actually a big one. This is quite a bombshell. Because the insight here is that if I am not the cup, 
given that the cup is the scene and I am the seer, if I now propose to you that the eyes are the scene and you are the seer, which is the mind, I have effectively separated you from your body. You are no more the body than you are your cup. Yes? Some objections can arise here. Like, what about pain? You know, like if I hit the cup, I don't really feel it. Well, I do with my fingers. But if, you know, I do this, I'm the one that feels that and not Roxanne over there, you know? Actually, actually no, Roxanne's very empathetic. She probably feels it too. But um, <laughs> um, she's a fire sign actually, so maybe not. <laughs> So if, if, you know, why, why does pain happen then? Pain happens to me. So obviously this body is innate, like me and not that one. Anyway, we can dispel that by saying, you call it my pain, but if you're able to experience pain as an experience, just as a pure experience without labeling it as my pain or my body, you will find that there is a gap between your mind and the experience. So the pain, the event of pain is like the event of seeing a cup. And think about it, right? The event of seeing a cup is a chemical event, is an electrochemical event. You see some kind of light reaction on your retina, which transfers into a chemical electrical reaction in the brain. That's called cup or experience of the cup. In the same way, pain is nothing more than electrochemical reaction. So we can at this juncture say that the mind is the seer, the body is the scene. Um, Noor, good job at the debate today. Very well done. One of my debate students uh, hopped on to TikTok and she absolutely killed it at the debate tournament that they went to today. So power to you, Noor, Alexia. <laughs> okay, so um, Claire asks, what if I am my eyes, but also am the cup? Claire, you ruin it for everyone, okay? That's the end of my lecture today. The end of my lecture will prove that you are all the things, but wait, 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 we'll get there, we'll get there. Right now, we're doing the negation first. I am not the cup because the cup is the scene. I am the seer. I now have realized I am not the body because the body is the scene and I am the seer. Oh, if you can do this, you've already done a lot for yourself. Can you imagine the dispassion, you know, that a person can have at this point? Dispassion in the Buddhist sense of a virtue. Like you're no longer obsessed with the body. You're no longer afraid of its potential decay. You can look at the death of the body or the decay of the body in the same sense. Welcome, Carla. It's good to have you. In the same sense as the destruction of this cup. Like, look, if you came to my house and broke this cup for me, I'm not going to be like not sad about it. You know, I do. I love this cup. It's my favorite big cup. It holds tea like nobody's business. And without this cup, it would be really hard to do three hour lectures. It's got good volume for tea. You know, but if you came over and you broke the cup, it's not the end of the world for me. Yeah, I'll be like, why'd you do that, dude? I love the cup. But it's not that big of a deal because I know there are other cups and I know I'm not the cup. So I don't feel this like existential despair. Notice some people do. Yes. Some people really feel so attached to their stuff that to take their stuff from them is to effectively kill them. Such suffering is present in such a one's life. Now, if I know I'm not the cup, you can break it. I don't care. If I know I'm not the body, so what do I have to fear? Disease? Sure. It's just an experience. I'm not it. Death? Sure. Changing of the clothes. You know, that's why the Bhagavad Gita opens with Krishna saying to Arjuna, he who thinks he is slain and he who thinks he is the slayer are both ignorant. Oh, Arjuna, you know, both lacking in wisdom. 
So now you know you're not the body, yes? You're the mind. It's a big thing already. Big accomplishment for Patanjali. Let's go further. Now what about the mind? Oh, thank you, Jess. Thank you very much. Now what about the mind, yes? Oh, Edward has come. Welcome, Edward. So now we know we're not the body. What about the mind? So now the mind is the seer looking at the scene, looking at the body. Welcome, Edward. Good to have you, brother. Okay, so let's now talk about how the mind relates to, the, to itself. So as the mind is the seer and the body is the scene, can you go deeper? It turns out that yes, you can. Because what is seeing the mind? You know, there is something else. We call it the sakshi or the witness. The witness is witnessing the mind. Think about it. If you were just thinking and no space to recognize that thinking was happening, you couldn't be cognizant of thinking. You need something other than your thinking mind to notice your thinking mind. You need the other to make an object of your mind. Now, you might at this juncture turn around and say, wait, Nish, isn't that just introspection? Isn't that the mind just observing the mind? I mean, we call that reflexive. Oh, Claire's dog is so cute. Hello. <laughs> you know, Claire's dog. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can call it like introspection. How is this different from introspection, Nish? Isn't this just reflexive thought, you might say? Okay, self-reflexive thought, the ability to introspect. Your mind can do that. So you can sit and write in your journal and think about thinking. Sure, a lot of us do it, actually. A lot of us think about thinking. We thought police, right? We think we're yogis and then we think a thought that's impure or whatever. And then we think that we ought not to have thought that thought, you know? <laughs> so we do this all the time. We introspect. But look, there are moments in your life where you don't introspect, yet you're still witnessing your mind. Um, so there are moments like, for instance, I like Swami Sarvapriyananda's example of the sunset. He says, oh, a sun rises. You don't need to introspect to realize that you feel delight at seeing the sunset. So it's not like the sun comes up and you're like, wait, I got to perform my self-reflexive function of introspection. Yes, ah, my mind is delighted. I am delighted. You know, you don't have to do that. You can have a spontaneous mind experience and without introspection, you can be a witness to that. On the flip side, you can have an introspection experience where the mind looks at the mind and still witness that. Do you see? So behind every experience of the mind, there is some other thing known as the sakshi or the witness, which is to the mind, what the mind is to the body, what the body is to the cup. This is the subtlest point. Your mind, which previously was the seer of the body, is now the scene of the witness. That means you are not the body any more than you are the cup, but you are also not the mind any more than you are the cup. Yes, and you know, maybe we can call it spontaneous introspection, Jess, that's fine. Um, but I think it's important to define introspection as this like event that you can verify as happening in you. So you can verify in your own experience now of introspection. Like do it, you know, like pause and, and think about thinking. Actually, it's probably hard to do when I pause. You can only kind of do it in the middle of thinking. Okay, notice this. This is why meditation is impossible. If you haven't learned how to kind of subtly work with your mind, or if you don't even really understand how the mind functions cognitively, these levels of argument are kind of inaccessible to you because you won't be able to verify it in your own experience of life. 
Just like in science, you need extensive training in how to measure with calipers, barometers, thermometers. Like you go to school for that. You get four years of learning the scientific method before you can go out and do science. Similarly, before you get this argument in an ashram or in a monastery, you often get, or in under the, the tutelage of a guru, you often get years and years of meditative discipline first. So when I tell to you now, isolate these events in your mind, you're able to do it easily with agility because you've mastered the mind. You've introspected, you've sat, and you've witnessed. So granted, this experience of the witness is contingent on a little bit of meditation. Some of you don't need it though because of work in past lives, which is a whole other can of worms. And you know, um, I will just put in the appendix our talk on karma and reincarnation. Uh, that's when Lyric joined us. I always remember with fondness when you Lyric, Lyric entered the family, it was during that karma time and reincarnation. Good time. Anyway, so um, a lot of you might not need the meditation to understand this, but the understanding here that you need is just simple as to say, you are to the mind, the scene, the seer. The mind is now to you, the scene. Given that the mind contains the totality of your personality, you have now effectively removed yourself from mind and body and world. Now you're Purusha. So what is Purusha? It's Sakshi. If you are able to fully, you know, like some people can say, I'm not the cup confidently. Some people can say, I'm not the body confidently. As, they, as you go deeper, the confidence decreases. I am not the mind is a little bit. I am the witness. They'll be a little quieter. They're not sure of it yet. You know, they're not sure. They're not uh, immediately aware that they are the witness. But you can begin experimenting with it now in your own life, like right now in this moment and in any moment. In fact, it requires moments to happen. You, because in meditation, at some point, you might just be the witness. So it's kind of hard to notice the, well, it's, it's the most direct experience of the witness in meditation. But you can notice it now more kind of drastically because you notice it as that which is behind all the drama that is happening. So I love the way Ram Das puts it. He says, on one level, I'm lecturing to you. On another level, you are listening to this lecture. But behind it all, I sit in my heart space watching this whole drama unfold with unbearable compassion. The idea that all this is going on, but I, the true me, the witness, remains unaffected and kind of untouched by all of this. And in that discovery, there is a great freedom. There is no longer a fear that I might mess up here. No longer a fear that my body is at risk or my mind, or for that matter, my personality, right? Like say I say something wrong, I cite something wrong. Say I'm defeated in intellectual argument. I don't know, say a Hindu nationalist shows up and gets really upset that I'm teaching a syncretic Hinduism and that all religions are one. I don't know. Any of those instances happening might happen to the drunken monkey niche, but they don't happen to me. You know, I'm a step away from all of that. The response here might be, isn't that dissociation? Isn't this a numb, cold, unfeeling state? You know, that's a natural question that will arise. <laughs> Yes, you're not crazy at all. I just get a, got a message about someone who was like, oh my God, I've always known this. I thought I was crazy. Yeah, you're not crazy at all. You're actually, in fact, the sanest person. <laughs> um, yeah, just stick around. Once we get through the lecture, I will stay for as long as you need and we'll talk about karma. Um, since after all, what is tiredness when you're not the body? You know. 
<laughs> what is concentration and focus when you're not the mind? That's kind of like some of the powers that come from disassociating. Anyway, once you realize that you're not the body and the mind, you might feel like, isn't this dangerous? Hello, Caroline from Hawaii. She's, she's like, you, you turn the screen around just to tease everyone and remind everyone that you're in Hawaii right now. <laughs> anyway, so um, why then is this state not dissociative? You know, why isn't it like numb? Okay, unfortunately, I'm not able to prove this to you through philosophical argument, except to point you to your own glimpses of this truth. Like when you were in Shavasana. Okay, Caroline is really going ham with this ocean. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and the truth is your body and your mind are waves that arise upon the ocean of the witness. The witness, Sakshi, is um, synonymous with uh, the father, uh, Purusha, um, Atman, Brahman, it's the same place, the same thing with varying degrees of internalization and experience. So why then is this not a dissociative state? Well, part of the reason that it's not is because when you experience it, you experience it as a kind of authenticity, joy, and meaning that is quite different from a kind of, you know, a dissociative state that might also share similar characteristics with this one. In the dissociative state, you're like an outsider of your own life. But in this state, you are the ultimate insider because all life emanates from this place. So you actually become more intimate with the now and with the experience than as an outsider dissociative person, you know? Um, so you only can verify it for yourself. Some of you might notice it now, you know? Like if you close your eyes, just. Might notice a sweetness. There's a certain sweetness there. And if you pay attention, you'll notice that it hangs out in the backdrop of your thinking. It's somewhere behind your sense of you. As long as you're obsessed with, I am Nish, Nish is X, Nish is Y, Nish is Z, it's not here in the room with you. The moment you kind of put all that stuff down, the moment I can kind of drop my Nishiness, it's there. It's like just in the room, it's always been here. You know, um, you feel it when you're having fun. When you're really having fun, you drop your concept of like stress. You're not so stressed maintaining the mind. You feel it, it's sweet, it's a sweetness. You know, it's so subtle though. That's why St. Paul of, uh, St. Paul, what's his name? Paul the Apostle said it was the peace that passeth all understanding. After all, understanding is of the mind. This is of an order of experience beyond the mind. How can you understand it? How can you objectify it? It will never be the seen. It is always the seer. So what a joke, right? You're looking for the Holy Grail and it was you the whole time. You know, haven't you heard that story? The... I don't, I won't get into a Holy Grail story now. I'll go all night. I realized that I'm coming now to eight o'clock. Um, so we only did one argument and we haven't even got to non-duality. So what I will do now is I will give you the other two arguments. I want you to know though, in full honor and respect of your time, that it is now eight o'clock and we are finished with our lecture proper. So please feel free to drop out at any time. And uh, yeah, I wish you a beautiful, beautiful night. Peace, peace, peace. Now, to continue. Um, <laughs> so with this idea that you are not the mind, not the body, you are Sakshi, you are the witness, there is a tool to practice this. And the tool is to refer to your mind and body in the third person. You know, 
it's a dangerous tool because it can produce dissociative experiences, but it's a good tool to kind of get into the habit of putting things into perspective. Now I'm going to give you the second argument. So this argument is known as the first one you just got is known as Drig Drushya Viveka. The next argument is known as Pancha, um, Pancha Kosha Viveka. Viveka means discrimination or dis, dis, discerning. And uh, Pancha means five. Kosha means uh, sheath, five sheaths discrimination. So this one is much like the first. You'll notice similarities. This comes from the Taitriya Upanishad. The Taitriya Upanishad is where a young boy goes to his father to figure out what God is. And his father starts to teach him this lesson. Um, and it takes him deeper and deeper into his life. Yes, exactly. There's no such thing as bad things. It's all um, a seeming, an illusion, a maya, just responding to DM. Okay, so now let's do this pancha, uh, pancha kosha viveka. Your most external layer is your body, right? The body is your physical layer. We call it the annomayo kosha, which is your uh, food body. That's what it's called, literally food body. It's made of food. It's made of eating. And here you are, your atoms or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Thank you. And your food body, it's changing all the time. You know this. It's disintegrating. It's always changing. Deeper than the body is what we call the pranamaya kosha, which is your energy or your vitality, which you also know is always fluctuating. You know, it's always kind of changing from moment to moment. Then you go a little deeper. You have the manomaya kosha, which is your mind. Your body changes slowly. It's like Saturn, right? It's like kind of very slowly moving. Your energy changes gradually. Your mind changes quickly, most quickly of all. You know, every moment your mind is changing. You go a little deeper and you get to what we call Vignanamaya Kosha, which kind of means uh, your intellect or your subconscious mind. Um, it's basically the cognitive function whereby you discern, discriminate, and judge. I don't really want to get into the whole yogic cognitive science here, but just note this as kind of a higher mind or an introspective mind or an imaginative mind, if you will. It's kind of a loaded term, this buddhi, but just note that it, it also changes. Deeper than that is what we call the ananda maya kosha, which is void. You know, now notice that I've lost some of you. <laughs> um, some of you got off the train at um, mind, right? Uh, because some of us haven't experienced deeper layers than the mind. For those of us who have meditated, worked with dreams, astral projected, lucid dreamed, uh, did all that stuff, you know about the Vignana Maya Kosha. For those of you who have gone very deep in meditation and gone beyond that, you've experienced what I'm calling now the Ananda Maya Kosha, which is the bliss body, um, which is the void, as Claire would describe it as a heavy quietude. It's a kind of tangible, palpable, no-thingness. Even that is changing, as you will discover when you experience it. Ultimately, beyond all of that, there is a point, and I'll give you citations in a little bit. At the very end of, and this is the Taitriya Upanishad, by the way. I'll just type it, just so everyone has it. Um, Taitriya Upanishad. Taitriya Upanishad. Okay. So deeper than all of that, yes, this void is the same as Shunyam, Shunyata in Buddhism. Uh, there's actually... A, a scholarly idea that this isn't the void of Buddhism. The void of Buddhism is what I'm going to talk about now. Beyond this void, beyond this Ananda Maya Kosha, there is something else and this thing doesn't change. 
So the idea then is, which one are you? The changing or the changeless? You know, which one is more you? And you're probably going to say the changeless because your body is changing, right? You know, you're not the body because somehow baby, you know, baby lyric, adolescent lyric, middle-aged woman lyric, and old grandmother lyric are all physically different. You know, Lyric practices yoga, so she's probably going to look like this for a while. But at some point, physically, you know, like, how do you even, you know, this person and this person and this person, they're different bodies. They're total different features. Yet there's something in us that says, oh, they're all me. You look at pictures of different bodies and you say, they're all me. Because you are not the body. You are the changeless that was able to make sense of the change or uh, notice the change from a different standpoint. Do you see that? So if you know that you cannot be the changing thing, you know that you cannot be the body. If you know the energy or the prana to be a changing thing, you know that you cannot be the prana. Since for you to even notice that change, you must be non-changing. You know, um, For a river to flow, there must be a riverbed. So while the river is always changing, there is a substratum under the river that doesn't change. And you could argue like, yes, the silt, all that changes too, right? But deep, 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 deep down, there's a bed. And that bed is what allows for all the change that occurs in the river or in the phenomena of silt and riverness. The only way to notice that change is happening is if you are the bed, if you are the substratum, if you are the unchanging vantage point from which you notice change outside of you. So as long as I've proven to you that the body, the energy, the mind, the higher mind, and the void change, I have proven to you that you are none of those things. Powerful, right? Again, much like Drig Drishya Viveka, um, you have kind of negated or rejected that which you are not. Yes, exactly, Jess. I'm actually going to tell you a funny story at the end. The mind is good at making objects, right? This is a thing that cannot be made into an object. The thing I'm talking about now is the one thing you cannot know, nor is it something that you can see. It's the one thing that is impossible to see, but by which all seeing is made possible. It's so tricky because the natural tendency of the mind is to make it an object but this is the one that's looking. So you cannot objectify the subject, you know? So that's the tricky thing. And yes, Edward is absolutely right. So this is uh, Pancha Skanda. <laughs> Actually, 4 a.m., this is precisely good for your brain. Do you know why there's a kind of meditative effect at 3.40 a.m.? Hello, Sean, welcome. So at 3.40 a.m., there is a noted increase in your ability to meditate. So most people experience kind of a heightened meditative state at 3.40 a.m. There's a, a, an occult writer and a biohacker known as, not known as, his name is Liam Thomas Christopher. But he writes that there might be an epigenetic memory of when we had to wake up at 3.40 to stoke the fire. So you can imagine like in a prehistoric setting in a cave, you slept when the sun went down, but you slept in shifts because around 3.40, your fire would probably die down. So you woke up, naturally, to stoke the fire. You probably wouldn't go right back to sleep. You'd spend some time maybe making love, making sure the cave was safe, and you'd probably sit there staring at the fire for a little while until you fell asleep. So mankind's first experience of meditation or trance states might have happened most often during this, um, you know, 3.40 a.m., 4 a.m. phase. 
So yes, Jess, contrary to your point, this might be the best time for this. <laughs> so anyway, there you go. Pancha Kosha Viveka. You are the change, changeless. You cannot be the changing. As long as you notice change, you are not that. So even if the vantage point is changing, the fact that you don't notice the vantage point changing, meaning you can't abstractify it away from yourself. Remember, this is a process of abstracting away from you all that you can philosophically understand is not you. You know, so that's what this whole game is about. It's really tricky. The reason we have different arguments is because I'm trying to get you to a sense of that which cannot be made into an object. It cannot be grasped because it is your very hand that does the grasping. I am trying to point you to you. And that's the tricky thing, right? Um, uh, so we can only be what we cannot view from an outside means. So we cannot know what we are. No, we can know what we are not. And you're right. We cannot know what we are. You are so right, Jess. You are the one thing you cannot know because you are the knower. You are the one thing you cannot see because you are the seer. Very nice, Jess. Very excellent. Everything you can know is not you. This process is known as nieti, nieti. Not this, not that. So since I cannot positively give you a definition, even the Buddha refused to define what enlightenment was. He defined it negatively. Nirvana means blowing out. Blowing out of what? Blowing out of all the things you aren't. Blowing out of your what Buddha called pancha skanda. Pancha skanda are your five, like the pancha koshas, parts of you. The Buddha has kind of a different anatomy. It's a little more logical and mental, but he proves in one fell swoop that nirvana is the ending of the identification with the panchaskandhas. You know, we call it anatma theory, which is no self theory. For those of you who say, what if this thing isn't even real? What if this witness doesn't exist? What if this witness is just emptiness? You're all Buddhists. You will love the Buddha because that's what the Buddha found. He said, this thing is not a thing. And as Jess pointed out, it's not a thing because it cannot be known. So why call it a soul? Why call it a witness? Why call it Atman? So the Buddha, his known departure from this philosophy or Hinduism or Vedic understanding is Anatma theory. The idea that this is not that. Um, this is not an Atman. Okay, so we did that. We got it done. Now let's do one final one. And... Uh, you know, okay, I'm going to I'm going to give you a choose your own adventure right now. I could give you the final third argument or if you're getting bored of arguments, I can give you stories. The stories are like the arguments. They do the same thing, but they kind of narrate it in a less philosophical, less intellectually rigorous way and a more poetic way. So choose your own adventure. Give me like a thumbs up reaction if you want the story um and give me a thumbs or don't do anything if you want the argument. Okay, I'm seeing a lot of story hands. Oh man, I think we're kind of evenly divided. Okay, I'll give you the I'll give you the stories. I'll give you the stories first. Here's the first story. A man is obsessed with discovering who he is. He wants to discover his purusha. And you know, yoga is often um yeah, of course it did. Um, somebody asked if Hinduism came from Africa, like duh, recently out of Africa, um, uh, anthropological theory, like technically everything did. Right. <laughs> so yes, of course. Um, so let's talk about the story. This guy really wanted to study the Purusha. 
He really wanted to understand um, what he was. And Shiva is known as the god of yoga or the king of the yogis. So Shiva is kind of seen as the patron saint, if you will, of yoga. So this fellow is obsessed with Shiva and every day he prays to Shiva. He meditates on Shiva. And one night while he's dreaming, he's in his Vijnanamaya Kosha or Buddhi mind, he gets a vision of Shiva. The God of yoga appears to him and he says, oh, my Lord, Maheshvara, how am I to see you? All I want to do is see you in this world. So kind of like Jess said, right? He wants to make an object of this thing. He thinks he can see himself. So he said, how will I see you, Lord Shiva, knowing you to be none other than myself? How can I see you? And Shiva tells him this in the dream. Thank you. Yes, Hinduism is actually a colonial term meant to lump together a bunch of different philosophies that actually have very little to do with one another. Anyway, so um, the story goes, he's told by Shiva, tomorrow, go to the marketplace and look for the man with no head. Then you'll know where I am. Then you'll see me. And this guy was like, yes, I have a task. So he wakes up the next day and he's ready. He's like, okay, okay. He wakes up early. He bathes in the Ganges. He runs down to the market and he starts to look everywhere, ready to see the face of his God, the man with no head. How cryptic. And he's looking. After about an afternoon spent looking for the man with no head, he doesn't find him or her. After the entire nighttime walking through the streets, banging on doors, looking for the man with no head, he doesn't find it. And he's so, you know, jaded and disappointed. He said, oh, but I was told that I would find this man with no head. I've knocked on every door. I was told that I would see him today. Where is he? Where is he? Then he realizes. Who is the man with no head? Do you know? Can you solve the riddle? The one man with no head. Is him, no? He can see everyone else's head, but he cannot see his own head. Now, of course, if you talk about mirrors, that's going to ruin my story. But even with a mirror, you never actually see your face. You only see a reflection. So he's the man with no head, yes? It is him, him the whole time. He's the one that's seeing. So that's our story. Um, there's another story. Ten men are going across the water. Okay, you can dissect the story till the cows come home. Why the number 10, number nine is sacred to this culture, all that stuff. But anyway, 10 fellows are going across the river. It's a part of the Ganges that's really like fast. So it's a really big stream, you know, and they're worried that they're not all going to make it across. That's the fear. So they start to go across the river. And finally, after much toil, the 10 fellows get across the river. Or so they think. One of them asks, did we all make it? Let me count. Let me count and make sure we all make it, made it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We've lost somebody. I only count to nine. And then his friend goes, no, you idiot. Let me count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. No. And they start to scream and cry because everyone takes a turn counting and nobody can find the 10th man. So this story is known as the 10th man story. It's a very deep story because it describes all the stages of religion or awakening. So where's the 10th man? They're screaming, they're crying. They're like, oh no, where, where is it? Where is it? Where? And they're all crying. And suddenly a stranger walks by. We can call the stranger the guru or the spiritual teacher. The stranger comes and says, my friends, why are you crying? Notice the stranger comes to speak to them out of compassion. 
So stranger comes and says, why are you crying, my friends? And they all say, oh, we, lost our, we lost our friend. Oh no, you know, we're so sad. We miss him, our friend. Um, he drowned in the river. And the, the stranger says, how do you know he drowned? And they say, because we counted and we only counted nine. So the stranger looks around and he obviously counts 10 you know, because he counts the person who wasn't counting himself. So he counts and he knows there are 10. So he says, no, there are 10 of you here right now. So those people who counted are like, what do you mean? I counted. I looked, I don't see what you're talking about. And he said, no, 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 trust me. The missing person is here with you right now. So this is the lowest level of religion, right? Faith. Blind faith in the words of a teacher, blind faith in the words of a scripture, but it still brings some measure of comfort. You know, if you're like freaking out because you thought you lost your friend, it's comforting to hear someone tell you that they're there, that they're not lost. So this is like beginner religion and it's fine. A lot of people benefit from this level. So that's level one of religion, you know, and he says, okay, now I will count for you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So you heard him count. He's proven to you that the 10th man is there, but you yourself don't know how to count for yourself. So this is the next stage of religion. You're getting into the esoteric teachings, but you haven't yet realized the truth of it. You feel great comfort now because you realize, you know, the 10th man is here. There's no reason to cry. I mean, the guru counted him for me, so he must be here. Okay, I take that on faith. So this isn't blind faith. This is more reasoned faith. Now the ultimate experience, the 10th man, is revealed to you in your own experience, in your own count. So the guru says, now I'll count and I'll show you how to count. So the guru takes one of the person's hands and starts to use his hand and say, look, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Tenth man is discovered. You see? So these are kind of like, stories, you know, to kind of describe what we're talking about here. You are the seer. Okay. So this is step one, right? I mean, the third argument is called the three states of consciousness from the Mandukya Upanishad. So if you want to check that out, it's called the Mandukya Upanishad. Oh, I just texted Nasrin personally. <laughs> Sorry. Mandukya Upanishad. So you can check that out over there. So in the interest of time, I'm just going to do the second step for you now. Here's the problem with the duality. So um, if you've successfully managed to do this step, you've done a lot of good. You've eliminated a lot of suffering, but you've also kind of created a weird schism between you and the world. And as Claire points out, this is not the most mature spiritual perspective. Transcendentalism is a kind of escapism. Because ideally, to Patanjali, once you've discovered your Purusha, you don't need to be in the world anymore. You've rejected it. You've walked out of the cave. So you go off and you sit in the mountains and you just be, you know, and it's called Kaivalya, meaning aloneness. There's a higher meaning for this word, but aloneness in this sense is just, I'm done with mind and body. Okay, we have dangerous things that can come out of this. First, you can, it can lead to the kind of demonization of the mind, body, and nature. So when you have dualism, you are always at risk of prakriti being put down or made to seem as an obstacle to spirituality. Since prakriti is what causes you to suffer, ultimately you see prakriti as bad. This leads to a culture of making nature kind of corrupt 
and demonic. You create devils and demons. You start to put women down and you start to maybe become kind of masochistic and start to harm your body because you see it as the enemy. So thanks to this kind of dualism in 5th century, 6th century India, the Buddha noticed its error immediately. The Buddha practiced with the dualist first. He practiced with yogis, but he found the mortification of the flesh an incorrect path. He didn't see why we had to demonize nature, demonize the body, demonize the mind. Wasn't that just obsession with the body and the mind? Isn't that just another form of attachment? Because on one hand, you can be attached and identified to the body. On the other hand, you could be so obsessively disidentified that you have aversion to the body. Aversion and attachment are two sides of the same coin, you know? Um, so this is the harm of duality. You can see it in Christianity because Christianity as it develops from Platonism or like Plato's philosophy in first century AD starts to demonize and put the world down. So your body is now made in sin. You know, it's um, your world is one of sin and debauchery and it's a fallen world. It's Babylon, it's corrupt. Um, you know, and you can see what happened with Descartes. He separated the mind and body. So now you see your mind is separate from your body. So your emotions and your intellect are at odds with one another. You can see that happen in our culture where some people earlier on were denying emotions as a valuable way to make decisions. So they would often like say, oh, women are so emotional. You notice there's almost always a connection between nature, emotions, and women. And this stuff is always put down by transcendentalist religion. Women are always kind of seen as the enemy because they represent the body. It was through your mother that you came here. So ultimately, if you hate coming here, you'll blame your mother and you have weird complexes about women, you know? So um, that's why you saw with Descartes, there was like this schism, you know, between emotions and mind. So in the early part of the 20th century, it was like, oh, you're too emotional. This decision is too emotional as if making decisions from your heart was wrong. Now, in our current era, we have the reverse problem. And this is what I'm setting out to fix. Lack of intellectual rigor. Especially in our new age community, people are way too like um, averse to reason and logic and intellectual inquiry because we've gone the other way with it now. As uh, Harish Wallace points out, if you watch the news, back in the early 20th century, newscasters would always ask, what do you think? Now they always ask, how do you feel? You know, so now people talk in terms of feeling, because as long as you talk about your emotions, you are freed from the intellectual responsibility of defending your opinion, because after all, it's how you feel. Who can argue with a feeling? You know, so you can see how there's this schism between the mind and body. So dualism is very dangerous. Plato creating Christian dualism, Descartes creating this schism between mind and body, and Patanjali create yeah, the adversity to research, all that stuff. Patanjali creating a schism between um, transcendental and imminent worlds. So how to solve this schism? Now I will close this lecture in this last 10 minutes with the height of Indian philosophy. Oh no, my computer is about to die. Let me do something about that. Okay, there we go. We are back in business. So now the question is, how do we resolve this duality? Three ways. There are three people that resolve this duality in three different ways. In Plato's case, there was a man named Plotinus. Plotinus did it brilliantly. Um, I'm going to give you an idea now. It works kind of like uh, a Gyana argument. Like if you hear this argument, it's like lightning to some. Here's the argument. If the transcendental world of Plato is the head side of a coin 
And the material world of Plato is the tales side of the coin. How are they both connected? Just a riddle. What connects the heads and the tails of a coin? Pop quiz. Anybody can answer. You know, I like the one that's holding it. That's interesting. Something a little more intimate though. The coin. What do you mean, Austin? What about the coin? The coin has heads and tails. So, no? Yeah, heads and tails are both two sides of the same coin. So the metal itself that's binding, they're both imprinted Bam. on either side. That's, that's it, uh, Austin. That's exactly right. The very substance of the coin. There is some medium in which heads or tail exist. This is the beginning of a Christian trinity. The Holy Ghost is always so mysterious. Like you got the father, you've got the son, you've got the transcendental and you've got the imminent. What connects them? The Holy Ghost, which is this mysterious energy field, right? So um, yes, so the coin, the material of the coin, the substance, this idea is like lightning for some people. That's what Plotinus did to Plato. Plotinus said, okay, Mr. Plato, you've got that world and this world. I propose a third thing, that which combines them. It's a very powerful idea. Yeah, and in Celtic paganism, you'll see those uh, the drawing. Uh, it's a threefold law, and I'm sure Jess will tell us about it uh, right at the end of this. So yes, that's for Plato. What about Descartes? Yes, precisely, Jess, thank you. What about Descartes? So who solved Descartes' problem? If Plotinus solved Plato in first AD, who solved Descartes? The answer is Spinoza. If you are a non-dualist, this, oh yes, it's a, yeah, yeah. Good, my, my bad, Jess, sorry about that. Yeah, it is kind of a, a, a Garnerian Wiccan appropriation. Yeah, you're right. Uh, have to call that out. Um, but this guy's name is Spinoza. He was a Jewish Dutch philosopher who was very interested in the mon monism of Judaism. You know, he learned from Judaism this kind of monotheistic way of looking at the world. So, you know what he said? He said that like, okay, you've got these two worlds, right? Mind and extension. The word for body back then was extension in modern philosophy. How are they united? Spinoza proves to you in about 18 lines of elegant argument in the book Ethics, Spinoza's Ethics. It's, I, I highly recommend reading it. It's powerful. It's mathematical in its precision. But he manages to prove in 18 lines, very simple fact that there can only be one infinite substance, since if there were two, they couldn't both be infinite. You know, because the very definition of infinite is to be not limited by some other thing. As long as there are two infinite things, one would limit the other. So by definition, you only could have one infinite thing. So if there was only one thing, how is it that you experience it in two ways, body and mind? It's because they're the same thing looked at in two different ways. So what you see as body can also be seen as mind, and what you see as mind can also be seen as body. Here's another question that will prove this point. Who is a better athlete, Stephen Hawking or um, Usain Bolt? Who is a better athlete? It's a trick question. I won't make you answer it. Who is a better intellect? Usain Bolt or, or, or uh, Stephen Hawking? Now, if you're a dualist, you'll say, no, Nish, they are categorically different. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Edward has a good mathematical point there. Um, there's more to it, Edward. I definitely glossed over it. It's an 18-line mathematical argument from Spinoza's Ethics. I don't have time to really get into some, because he has these things, he calls them, um, it's like rejoinders. 
So he does get into this idea of like two infinites. Can you have them? And uh, he gets into some definition linguistic theory. Um, but yeah, so that's definitely something for Spinoza. I can't handle that right now, but it's a great question. So the idea then is Spinoza says this. If you tell me now that Usain Bolt and Stephen Hawking are categorically different, you can't evaluate one in the light of the other. You have committed a dualistic error. You have ascribed to one the realm of the mind and to other the realm of the body. But if you were able to realize that Usain Bolt is an intellectual because he's using his mind to figure out how to move his body or overcome mental difficulties, um, and you could put him on par with Stephen Hawking in terms of ex uh, excellence. Now, you can also think of Stephen Hawking in the terms of an athlete, because what does an athlete do? Uses her body. Stephen Hawking's in thinking is using the, the neurons in the brain. There's some physical activity happening that you call a thought which can also be called firing of neurons. So every mental thing can be described in physical terms and every physical thing can be described in mental terms. Therefore, physical and mental are interchangeable categories, meaning there's only one thing. Thought is matter and matter is thought. As Einstein would say, you know, by the way, prakriti means both matter and energy. So if I translated prakriti for you, it would translate as this, uh, matter hyphen energy because the early um, Indian philosophers in the region, Indus Sarasvati philosophers, didn't dissociate matter and uh, energy. And only recently Einstein is figuring that out. So it's interesting kind of like to see these parallels. Anyway, um, notice what Spinoza has done. This is powerful because you can think of your thoughts entirely in terms as emotions that have risen up into cognition. And you can think of emotions as buried thoughts. So every time you're feeling something and you don't know why you're feeling it, there's probably a thought pattern associated to that emotion that is below the level of your awareness right now. It might be a thought pattern, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, but you don't really understand it. As a thought pattern, you feel it as an emotion. You know. Then on the flip side, every thought comes from an emotion. So the reason you think about it is because you felt about it. So you can think of thought and emotion as existing on one spectrum. That's why just like the word prakriti means both matter and energy, the word chitta means both mind and, sorry, a thought plus emotion. Chitta is the Sanskrit word for conscious cognitive experience, which we never delineated between thought and emotion. Yeah, Einstein was 110 years ago. He's a couple of centuries late to the party, but he got there. Um, Claire says, so this brings me back to the question at the right time this time. If I am the cup and I am the eyes and I am everyone, doesn't this bring us back to suffering? Because as others suffer, we, we suffer too. Yes. So let's get into that. So we've done it, right? We've done it with Spinoza and we've done it with Plotinus. Now, what about uh, Patanjali? Here's the answer. The answer comes in the form of Tantra, which by the way, is known for its worship of the goddess. Do you see that? Isn't that poetically beautiful? It's finally an embrace or a reaffirmation of all that was previously rejected. And this embrace comes in this wonderful experience described erotically. Just read Hafiz or Rumi or any tantric Buddhist or any tantrika writer. It's like a very erotic experience, um, but it's not couched in sensual erotica. It's spiritual erotica. And it's goddess worship because it answers Claire's question. How then are we connected to everything? Here is the answer. Previously, you rejected everything. Now, from that place of rejection, you do the second step which is reaffirmation. 
Do you know when a kid is rebellious, the kid first rejects everything, but if the parents allow the kid to reject all the things, the kid might later come around and embrace it in a more authentic way. So in that sense, the kid is really affirming it. The process of Tantra is negation followed by a deeper affirmation. So right now you think you are the mind and body because you don't know that you're anything else. First negate the mind and body you realize you're the Sakshi or Atman or Brahman. You can stop there, sure. But that's not the most mature spirituality. The most mature spirituality is Tantra, which happens around 10th century AD India. And that says, after you've identified yourself to be not the mind and body, the next step is to affirm that which you previously negated in a deeper way. Uh, I love that. Years of understanding. Yes, because it's all in you already. This is stuff that you've all known. So how do we get this next step? So to answer Claire's question, here's how you do it. You ask the question, if mind and body, if soul and nature are separate, how then are they linked? That's the next question. What links them? So what creates that? What is the matter of the coin? You know, what is that substance? Now you are yogis. The question as to what the substance of the coin is makes you a yogi. In fact, Abhinama Gupta in I think Tantra Loka defines the yogi as such. Most people know the knower and the known, but only the yogi is interested in the knowing. (laughs) This is the trinity, the knower, the known, and the mysterious knowing, which is that which connects the two phenomena. How do you analyze this knowing? I'll give it to you now. It's called Abhasa theory. The idea is this. One never appears without the other. And uh, Claire, you heard this in the form of Schrodinger and Heisenberg in my last lecture on Thursday, where Schrodinger and Heisenberg were two uh, modern physicists who kind of postulated that phenomena cannot be separated from the experience of those phenomena. So it's much like the philosopher Bishop Berkeley Yeah, yeah, you can think of that. And I don't want to say we are just knowing. We are actually knower, knowing, and known, united. Sri Ananda Mahima says, enlightenment is when the knower, the known, and the knowing all collapse into one thing. That's the mystic awakening. Tantra is known as the three plus one method. You know, there's always three things reconciled by a fourth thing, you know. And that's why you see the trident of Lord Shiva Three states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, sleeping. Three parts of phenomena, knowing, knower, known. Connect all three in the stem of the trident, and then you will become enlightened. So how do we connect it? So notice this. There is never a known without the knower. So you can never prove the independent existence of any known thing without also having a knower involved. You know, so what the term is, is invariable concomitance, meaning you cannot have one without the other. Yes, one moment, Nelson, I see your hand. Um, Invariable concomitance means as long as there is one, there must be the other. So they are intrinsically linked in some way. What is that way is the question. Oh yeah, no worries, Nelson, no worries. So what way are the two connected? Unfortunately, I'm not able to tell you. It's something that you can only investigate. And the way to investigate it is through certain meditative techniques. 
once you are able to see the link between the two, you realize that not only are you not the mind and body, you realize that you are in fact all minds and all bodies. The question then becomes, what of suffering? Aren't you everyone suffering? And Anisha did ask this question before as to if you thought your suffering was bad, what happens when you are now all the minds and all the bodies? Isn't your suffering just times a billion? Thank you, Caroline. Have a lovely time in Hawaii. We miss you in our Reiki group. Much love to you, Caroline. I hope you're enjoying the emails. <laughs> um, so what then, and this will be the clincher for today, what then is that experience, this non-dual experience of being both beyond the body of the mind, body and the mind, and being all bodies and all minds? What is this non-dual experience? And it's very difficult to explain. The best thing you can probably do is sit and meditate in front of a Yab Yum Buddha. Let's call this Yab Yum, Yab Yum Buddha. Let me just Yab Yum Buddha. So the Yab Yum Buddha is a tantric image, and it's an image of a meditating Buddha with a woman on his lap, and they seem to be in like some kind of sexual intercourse sort of thing going on. It's the metaphor there is that you are in a state of perfect transcendental meditation. And when you are in the state of the witness, that's not the most fun you can have. That's supremely blissful and it's wonderful, but that's not why you came here. The idea is that you, you are uh, the universe's dirty joke. Your entire body is the penis of the universe penetrating itself in the form of existence to use the uh, kind of erotic terms of Tantra. Your whole body is an erogenous organ for your spirit to experience itself embodied in form. So how then can this experience be suffering? It's only experienced as suffering insofar as you see pain as suffering and you only see pain as suffering when you call it my pain. And the my, when it comes from this, the ego, the ego doesn't like pain. The ego is scared of pain because the ego's job is to protect itself from pain. So as long as you are the ego, you exist in a kind of scarcity mentality. Your role as the ego is to kind of jostle and compete and establish a pecking order. Insofar as you're doing that, there is suffering. There is a real sense of loss. There's a sense that you will lose the body and lose the mind. So suffering is only true for an ego because only an ego is divorced from its reality as that which cannot be killed, cannot be harmed. In fact, the work, um, what is it called? Uh, a Course in Miracles, right? Um, yes, you're feeling it, Jess. It's, it's transmitting now. Sit with it. Sit with it. You're experiencing now a Satori. So these arguments have the ability to do that. So just like kind of continue along, let these arguments pull you into this, this state. So A Course in Miracles opens with this line. The, uh, nothing, uh, nothing, nothing real, oh, nothing real can be harmed. Nothing unreal exists. Once you discover yourself to be the soul, you discover what's real. When you discover what's real, you discover that it cannot be harmed. Once you discover that it cannot be harmed, you no longer suffer. So when you now affirm yourself to be all cups, all bodies, all minds, it's no longer felt as a suffering. 
It's felt as Shiva Lila, the game or dance or play of life. And suddenly your game is to help awaken others because you know them to be yourself. So you know that the best way to enjoy this game is to awaken every pair of eyes in the universe, not just human eyes, but also beings in other realms, also animals. Because by the way, in Tantra, which has links to shamanism, it integrates a lot of shamanism from Bonpo in Tibet and uh, Kashmiri forms of uh, shamanism. Every animal is seen as the physical form of a spirit. So every tree is a yaksha, a tree spirit. Every snake is a naga, uh, a, a spirit. So every planet is the, Plato said this, right? Aristotle, sorry, not Plato. Aristotle said the body of a planet is the body of the spirit that governs the planet, the god Venus or the god Mars. So you as a human don't see animals in this state. You see animals as they really are, spirits you know, uh, beings with energetic awareness and you're interested in enlightening them all. Some people legitimately go into the forest and spend the entirety of their enlightenment lives teaching animals. You will see them. If you go to India, they squat by marshes and they croak to frogs. They are teachers of frogs. Some of them teach snakes. We have temples in India devoted to rats, to snakes, if you come visit me in Malaysia, I'll take you to the snake temple. My mother won't let me take you because she'll say that you'll get bitten and I'll be liable. So she never lets me take my friends to the snake temple, especially my white friends from America. My mother is especially protective of you lot who come from America. <laughs> yeah. She has this thing in her mind where it's like, dengue mosquito will bite you. You're from the first world. I don't know. Anyway, so there are temples in India devoted to enlightening these spirits. There are yogis like Matsyendra Natha who are in alternate realms right now, educating spirits in different astral realities. And there are enlightened beings on this earth, like the Buddha and Swami Vivekananda, who are enlightening and teaching beings on this earth. The question is, what do they feel that causes them to want to teach? You can answer this question in two ways. One, they feel great empathy, identifying themselves with the suffering of all. They feel compassion and their compassion moves them to teach. This is known as the path of the bodhisattva, the pure awakened one. So pure, oh, sorry, I texted. Yeah, uh, bodhisattva. So pure is the awakening of the bodhisattva that he or she feels Dome wants to go to the rat temple. I love that. So pure is the bodhisattva that she feels the suffering of everyone. And it's so pure. You know, a lot of suffering comes from your feeling of aloneness, like being lonely, like not understood, kind of split off from others. Um, that suffering no longer exists because you know now you are everyone. You are intimately connected to everyone. And everyone is you with degrees of self-revelation and self-concealment, you know. Next week, we will talk about the most mysterious question in yoga, which is why does this concealment happen? Why do some people seem such contracted, dense forms, you know, such bigoted, hateful forms? And why do some people seem like such loving forms? How can we come to love everyone, which is the only spiritual maxim that matters, love everyone, not tolerate everyone, not understand everyone, not respect everyone, love everyone. And what is love but the willing to be nailed to a cross for everyone, right? So Jesus is willing 
the image of Jesus, to be nailed up to a cross, sacrificing himself for the all. The Buddha spent his whole life for everyone. And when the Buddha felt like he was, his students were outgrowing him, the Buddha felt like he was stunting the development of his students, he left. And he left in the most dramatic way. He ate food that he knew was poisoned. He committed suicide, much like Socrates drank the poison, much like Jesus knew that someone was going to betray him, but was okay to be betrayed. Because all of those figures knew that at some point they had to leave behind their disciples. If they stayed around, everyone would be shadows. You know, they're spiritual giants. Vivekananda said at the end of his life, at age 39, I believe, he said, there will be many Vivekanandas after me. And Vivekananda said, if I have to take a thousand more births just to train up one man, I will. I will continue to take births until everyone is enlightened. You know, you'll hear this kind of language from masters because you're right, Claire. To one, in one sense, when you dis discover that you are all minds and all bodies, you feel the most exquisite suffering. It is the most beautiful suffering you ever felt. It is a, a kind of holy suffering, a divine suffering. Welcome back, Roxanne. It's the suffering of the Buddha for a wailing, crying humanity. And when the mother feels the suffering of her child, when the child is hungry, she doesn't suffer. It's, a, it's like love. You know, the mother feels like compassion. She knows the baby is suffering, but she doesn't suffer with the baby, but she, she's moved to help her baby. It's like that. Like the Buddha, one who is connected to their Buddha nature, feels for everyone. And the people that you feel for the most are like the bigots, the people that cut you off in traffic. Because you suddenly look at them and your question is not, why did you do that? Your question is, brother, sister, what ails thee? What ails thee? Where is the splinter in your paw? Can I take it out for you? Not in this weird way, like, oh, I need to like liberate everyone. There's a lot of born again crazies after you have this spiritual experience because you can start becoming kind of like proselytizing and going around trying to like, why don't you see? You know, you'll run, as Ram Das says, you'll run down the aisles of your church shouting at everyone. Why can't you see? That's kind of immature. Cast not your pearls before the swine lest they turn and rendy, right? That's kind of an immature non-dual experience because you actually think your words matter. You actually think that you can teach people by like teaching them. But you realize that we live in a world of pure vibe. The only thing that matters is the vibe that you put out. So a cobbler makes a shoe in a spiritual state. That shoe will enlighten you much better than a million lectures by ignoramuses. You know, much better to wear the shoes of the master than it is to sit at the lectures of a hundred charlatans. Because words will never do it. When we sit here, it's more about the vibe. It's more about sitting together. And if we never did this again, it really wouldn't matter because we live in a world of pure vibe. So whatever you're doing in your world, your only job is to become this, to in, in, in have this insight and then go forth and be. Go and hang out in cafes and smile. You'll notice something really weird, by the way. Once you settle in this non-dual experience, just drive around and look at people you'll notice a smile comes to their face. Go to the grocery store and see how the clerk treats you. Something changes in everybody's day when you just walk around in this state. You know, I love the Black Sabbath song of The Wizard, you know, because there's a line that Ozzy sings in there where he says, everyone's happy when the wizard walks by. You know, there's like that feeling of like, it brings joy to everyone. So when you realize that, you no longer need to run around 
awakening people because you realize, as Ram Dass points out, the snake sheds its skin at the rate at which it's ready to shed its skin. You cannot rip the skin off the snake, meaning you cannot show anybody who is not ready um, to see that they are this truth. And in fact, why would you? How mean? How mean of you to like rob them of this game, this, this game of suffering? After all, the worst person to sit next to in the movie theater is the one who whispers in your ear, you know, it's all special effects. It's not real. You know, like what a buzzkill. It ruins the movie. So next to you right now, there is a person sitting who actually believes herself to be Jamie Lee Curtis. She actually believes herself to be running away from the axe murderer. She's stressed because she wants to be the final girl. So she's jostling with all the women around her and all the men around her. She's going to survive the killer, you know, because she's in the movie. She's forgetting that it's all watching the movie. So you have two choices now. You are awakened, right? You look next to you and you see her. If you just look at her, the force of your gaze might make her uncomfortable. She might shift two seats down away from you. <laughs> so you will start to repel people who do not want truth. And just as well, they should be left to enjoy the movie on their own. Another thing can happen. You can be looking at her and she suddenly takes notice of you, you know? So you're sitting next to her, gives her a moment and it's going to be like this because she's glued to the screen. She's glued to the story of her life, the drama of her life that she takes to be real. But if you sit next to her, she goes and turns around. It's so quick. You can see it in their energy when they do this. Like their whole energy shifts and it goes back. Like, and that's enough for them, you know? Um, there's something else you can do too. There's something else you can do. You have two choices. And this is the advice that most mystics give you. Once you realize you're not the movie screen, leave. Get up go outside and just take a walk, go to the lobby. I like how uh, Liam Thomas Christopher says, uh, go to the lobby, meet the beings there. They will be delighted that you've come. You know, they'll be delighted that you've come out into the lobby. Some of those beings will want to teach you. Some of those beings will want to delude you because you're obsessed with your power, but meet them, go and meet the staff, meet the staff of the shadow play. Plato didn't put this in, an in his analogy, but why leave the theater so soon? Go and meet the staff first. Then if you really want, walk out of the theater. Take your walk. You know, this is Liam Thomas's, uh, Liam Christopher Thomas's kind of analogy with the theater playing off of Plato that I'm citing for you now. Take, take a walk, you know? And now you have a choice. Maybe you just stay on your walk. Be Patanjali. Just stay outside. But after a while, you know, you might start thinking, what about those people in the theater? I mean, I was them. I am them. Shouldn't I go back? Shouldn't I go back and, you know? So now you come back to the theater, right? You again have a choice. Maybe you sit in the back and you just watch. This will be the best movie of your life because you know you're not Jamie Lee Curtis. You know you're not going to be ax murdered, but you can still enjoy it. You know, you can still enjoy the movie. So for the rest of your life, enjoy the drama of your life. That might be enough for you. So some of you want to leave the theater. Some of you want to hang out with the theater staff, which by the way, gets really dangerous because if you've seen Spirited Away, they have a habit of recruiting you. <laughs> so you might end up being recruited <laughs> to run the show and you might turn into a rock star, creating images for other people to become obsessed with. Do you see it now? All these people that you take to be rock stars, idols, do not worship idols is the claim. All these people... Might, there's more than meets the eye there. You're not looking at Slash, by the way. You're looking at a powerful astral being 
who's part of the theater staff, if you will, creating images, you know. Um, I love Slash. I love Slash to death. So I just say that. But these beings, often when they play, they're infused with the power, you know, and we can get into our art theory later. Or here's your other choice. You can sit and watch the movie. That might be enough. Or you might just be one of those bodhisattvas, one of those busybodies that for a moment looks away from the drama of your life and looks at the theater to see everyone else watching. I believe Don Miguel Ruiz uses the same analogy in his four agreements, fifth agreement maybe. But you're looking and you notice that there are some people who are shifting in their seats ready to get up and you're like, I'm going to work. <laughs> and what your work is, is totally up to you. Maybe you make shoes, you know, maybe you sell flowers by the 101. Have you seen Soul? Yeah, it's a great movie. Um, but one of those, you know, the mystics without the borders, right? Like the uh, mystic sans frontiers, like the guy who is like the head mystics, moon, moon, moon shadow. I don't know. I can't remember his name, but he spends his time like advertising on the corner of a New York street. You will meet these people. I promise you, you will meet them. You will see it in their eyes. When you meet these people, there's a kind of presence in their eyes that is like, you know, they're there fully with you now. They're not caught up in this drama of maintaining who they are. They appear real. They appear authentic. You, as you encounter that in yourself, will see it in others. And you don't need to do anything. It's like, like a secret smile that you have with them. And you know that you are the people in the theater who are awake to the movie, but are sticking around to enjoy what's left of it. You've seen the ending, but you're sticking around. It's your second time. Um, but you're also interested in maybe whispering to some, like, don't worry. You know, maybe someone's sweating, like Jamie Lee Curtis is about to be stabbed. And maybe all you say is, don't worry. That's all you need to say. And then they're chill. You know? So there we go. This is higher non-duality. It is the experience of being not the mind and body, only so that you can have a more enjoyable experience of being all minds and all bodies. So the end of this philosophy should take you to full compassion, to full selfless service, and to full um, syncretic awareness of all religious truths, not just because selfless service is morally good. You know, not just because syncretism or universal values is morally good. You're beyond all of that now. Just because it's an innate expression of your fundamental nature as the absolute, as the one thing that is always, will always exist and exist only now. That thou art. Tat tuam asi. Thank you for another lovely episode of For the Love of Yoga. For more guided meditations and instructions in yoga philosophy, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. Do stick around for the rest of this episode to hear the questions and answers. May these words serve you and may you have a beautiful day ahead. Um, but basically what we were centering around was that the egoic self of the personality that we uh, interact with or like think about in and of ourselves, it fundamentally is built in built and constructed as a mental model that we understand through language and language in and of itself is symbolic representation. So anything that we could know of the ego or the personality can only truly be an abstraction at best of uh, an awareness that would have to lie underneath it because there has to be something that's interacting uh, with these symbols and these, these, uh, typographical models to like, that's using them because they, they're, it's constructing it. So it has to be something underneath it. So that's kind of where my mind was going was just that, uh, personality in and of itself seems kind of flawed if it's, if it's understood or built through this, this, uh, 
symbolism. Well done, Austin. That's absolutely, I mean, the name for ego is ahamkara. Ahamkara. Aham means I. Mm -hmm. Kara, from the word karma or kri, means to make. So ahamkara means the I maker. Isn't that interesting, Austin? It is. The idea is like, you're right. It's a symbolic representation, but who is it that's doing the projecting, you know? Totally. Yes. Good. good. Yeah. So that's just where my mind was going uh, yesterday during meditation. I was, yeah, that was it. Wonderful. So strong. This Reiki stuff. Good to see you like stepping into your own. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a question. Hi. Um, Thank you so much. This is uh, my first time. Um, here, I was just wondering, um, when your yoga classes are, and, um, also something that I was thinking about during your lecture was, um, all the, uh, kind of similarities and how much, um, this kind of philosophy is really the root of a lot of the modern psychological treatments that we're seeing a lot of evidence for now, like acceptance and commitment therapy or act, um, uh, especially. So, um, it's just kind of amazing. And as somebody who has a degree in philosophy, but unfortunately was part of a program that was very, um, Eurocentric, um, I haven't gotten to explore these ideas and I'm just blown away by, um, how much inspiration, um, you know, maybe uncredited for sure was, was taken from them. So, and this culture. So thank you so much. And, um, let me know when I can join again. Absolutely. Carla, let me just say that, um, when Plato was talking, well, Aristotle was talking about the seven planets and we go down through the rungs and the journey of the soul into embodiment stops in these seven planetary houses and gains a virtue and a vice, that might be the world's earliest chakra theory. Do you see? So there's a myth that the chakras come from the east to the west. It's a myth. Because in the east, we only start talking about chakras by maybe 5th century AD, you know, well after Plato and Aristotle. And we only had five. I mean, anywhere between, you know, some thousands, but we only really had five and they weren't even called, there were no colors. So the chakra theory as we see it today as a psychoanalytical model or as a model for the seven experiences or dimensions of life is a syncretic model of Aristotle meeting Tantra. You know, um, there was a lot of interaction between Alexander's uh, philosophers and the gymnosophist who are known as the naked philosophers of Northern India. And there were great debates between the two. You know, uh, my theory is that there isn't like a master race or like a master mythos. It's just that different cultures come to the same conclusions because these truths express something that's transracial, that's beyond um, circumstances like where you were born, in what culture you were born to, because they're innate to the human mind, you know. So, yeah, just wanted to point that out, Carla. But otherwise, you're totally right. Like with Schopenhauer and with Kant, there's just like a lot of overlap between Eastern and Western philosophy. And my only work here is to unite the two. I just want to show every, like just that they're all just one thing. You know, that's like my ultimate thesis. And that we in the West shouldn't feel like a sense of like burden or debt. And of course, you know, there's like a reverence for a culture that's old and ancient. 
But there should also be a kind of like confidence for what the West is contributing with its understanding of the material world and its science and its social empowerment. And India too needs to be humble and realize that for all of its ancient wisdom, it lacks in the grounded reductionist reasoning that is required for social change. And, and, and you know, so we need to come together is essentially that. But good point, Carla, good point. And as to your first question, I teach um, to, uh, Monday at 7 p.m., as you know. Um, I invite you all to my Thursday... Um, 7.30 p.m. lecture. I don't stream that anywhere because it's a little more focused and a little more like heavy, I suppose, as Claire and Anisha and Daniel might say. Uh, but that's with Yoga World Heart. So you're welcome to come on Thursday. These are all times in Pacific. Yoga World Heart. And of course, Wednesday at 2 p.m. and Friday at 5 p.m. with Stay Om Yoga. Wednesday, we do like you know, vinyasa, hatha yoga type stuff, you know, a lot of heat building sequences. Friday, we mostly meditate, do pranayam with some light, um, light restorative type asana kind of practice. Yes, Jess, absolutely, please. Yes, Jess. Oh, uh, is human morality just, yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, okay, so it's a great question because there's certain, it's called instrumental ethics. That's what we call it in yoga, which is you practice the yamas and niyamas, meaning you practice certain social um, conditions in order to benefit your meditation. You don't practice them because they are inherent moral goods in of themselves. So this like ethical idea that there are certain moral goods that are just like, you know, natural law from Thomas Aquinas, like interpreted in the sense that like these things are just good and you must obey is a kind of idol worship because now you've put something outside of yourself, like Hammurabi's pillar, you know? Um, but anyway, the idea, um, Jess, and I will get into your other lines of reasoning, is that when you discover yourself to be what you are, you no longer have immoral impulses. You no longer steal from others because what is there to steal when you are all things? You no longer kill others because who can you kill when there is no other? You feel the ultimate form of compassion. And I love that Anisha really vibes with this idea because it's really, really powerful idea, but it's, I, I love watching your face every time we say this idea. <laughs> but yeah, the idea that like stealing feels like moving one part of you to another part of you. It doesn't feel like you need anything. Um, you, there's no lust anymore because you feel complete that you no longer need to complete yourself in another. So then it can become true sharing. Any relationship you entered into, be they sexual, romantic, or friendly, are it's totally an act of sharing. There is no more like manipulation. And notice in a lot of relationships, we steal each other's time. We steal each other's emotional energy. We try to use them to bolster a sense of self. All of that goes away. We lie, cheat, steal, kill, all because we haven't found our imperishable Atman or what the Buddha might call Anatman. Once you have that, morality flows from you naturally as an expression of what you are. But if you try to be moral first, you're just going to end up like kind of schizo, like kind of like it's going to harm you. If you become obsessed with a code of morals, it's going to harm you because it's, it divides you against yourself. So morality and bliss must not be the ends. They must be the means or at least the byproduct of spirituality. You know, so beware a spirituality of morals 
because such is a spirituality that limits your personal expression. Remember that moralistic spiritualities are often dogmatic spiritualities that are often against innovation. Yes? That's why Tantra says either nothing is forbidden or everything is forbidden. What a free thinking world, you know? So it's not moral relativism. There is absolute morality, but it's absolute in the sense that you are absolute and there is no other. So enough of this ethical question, because any kind of ethical question presupposes the other. And in non-duality, we know that the other is an illusion. You know, but good, good, good question, Jess. Uh, I've always been thought that karma was about human morals. Not at all. Not even a little bit. There is no moralistic flavor in karma at all. Um, mostly because, can you make a moralistic claim for gravity? Like, it doesn't matter if you're a good or bad person. If you like fall down the stairs, you fall down the stairs. You're going to like roll down and hurt yourself. It's not like gravity was out to get you. It wasn't targeting you. It isn't like, you know, it's just impersonal law. As I say that on TikTok, the laws of human nature just join the TikTok. Isn't that gorgeous? <laughs> but this, the point here is that karma is a law, meaning whatever you do, the action must have its consequence. So you should translate karma as action-reaction. Or better yet, cause-effect. You'll notice that in Indian, um, early Indian philosophy, Sanskrit words often mean two things. Uh, not quite. Dharma is separate from karma. Um, but cause-effect means that for every cause, there must be effect. You cannot have a cause without the effect. And yes, Newton later defines it as every action is an equal and opposite reaction. So as long as there's an action, you must be around to experience the reaction. That's an energetic law. And for those of you who come on Thursdays, you know all about the Ishvara and Jnana Shakti and the geometry and blueprints of existence. So this is that law, right? Karma is a law within the blueprint of existence. It's one of the, uh, what do you call it? It's number 11 in Maya. The tattvas, it's called niyati, the law of causation. It's one of the veils of maya. So in karma, the idea is that if you do something, you have to be around to experience the effect. That goes for good things as well as bad things. Because there's no real good or bad, there's just energy. So if you steal, all that, the only reason that that's wrong is because your, your Pavlovian conditioning is reaffirming to you now that you are incomplete as you are and you need to steal to get something outside of you. Do you see how that's ignorance, not immorality? So we don't have a word for evil in Sanskrit, really. I mean, there is a term, a duratma, a duratman. It's the opposite of Mahatma. You know, Mahatma Gandhi means great soul. Duratma means like kind of ignoble or weak soul, I don't know. But the error is not sin. Sin is never spoken of in yoga. The error is avidya, meaning ignorance. And if you translate the Greek word for sin, it translates to missing the mark. When the arrow of your reason misses the mark of true understanding, then you have sinned, you know? So it's not a matter of sinning. Think about it this way, the saint Hitler and you are all acting on the same motivation. I'm sorry to say, but you are all three of you acting from your understanding of the world. It just so happens that the saint's understanding of the world is closest to world as it is and Hitler's furthest from the world that it is. So anytime you act from a place of ignorance, you will indefinitely cause suffering for yourself and for others. But if you use the word evil, you deny Hitler his humanity. You deny that that is just a man who out of his ignorance was doing what 
he thought was best for him and his family. You know, if you tell the saint that he's a saint, you're denying her humanity because you're saying she's on a pedestal that you can never be on, you know? But if you accept that all of this is a matter of learning, then as you move towards understanding, you too become a saint. But your morality doesn't change. Your knowledge does. All right, I have to ask you a question. What's wrong? What's wrong with denying Hitler his morality? Uh, one one reason that it's I mean, sorry, his sorry, sorry, his humanity. Yeah, his humanity. One reason why it's particularly sad in the instance of a saint, it's sad because we see ourselves as separate from them and we can never achieve what they can achieve. We put them on a pedestal. A lot of religions do that with saviors like Jesus. He came to teach people to be like him. But look at this. He says, you know, um, even John 12, 14, he says, this and even greater works shalt thou do. Um, I am now going to my father. But now people think he's the only way. So they deify him, right? Same with the Buddha. He said that everybody can do this. We made him a celestial king. So that error is the same looking at Hitler. So if we put Buddha on the pedestal and say we can never be him, meaning we can never understand him, we've uh, closed off possibility of interacting with the Buddha. Similarly, this is especially sad. If we say that we are not Hitler, that he's somehow categorically different from us, that he's inherently evil and he's not a human, he's inhumane, we deny him his humanity, we deny the only way we could have saved him, which is to show him a reality separate from the one that he has. Do you see? So when a bigot, like, say a bigot, like, hates, you know, I've, I've met many people in my life who have a certain idea about Indian people, or at least people who are from countries. Like people don't really understand the colonies and that we speak English. So often people are very surprised when I speak English. And they're often very surprised when I have an understanding of Western philosophy and like, you know, stuff like that. But if there's someone who believes that all Indians are like backward and they don't know anything about Western science or technology, there's no way to heal that rift except by introducing them to an Indian who isn't those things. But if that Indian makes him feel bad, he will automatically associate his experience with Indians as bad and will continue to radicalize against Indians. So the the irony is that we can only correct behavior with compassion, never with chastisement, you know? So as long as we create the word evil, we can deny humanity to people and therefore conveniently ignore having to compassionately educate and deal with them. Right? Is that, was that satisfactory, Roxanne? Yeah, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. You're like, eh, well. I, I can't, I, yeah, I can't formulate the argument. And unfortunately I wasn't here for your whole lecture today. So I might be missing, missing bits that you, but just, um, I do think that, that, that there's, I, I don't know. I can't formulate it now, but, um, I, I had a sense of, of evil in some deep experience in my life, a sense of what it is. And, mm -hmm. And the fear of what that of what that is. Um, but anyway, I can't articulate these thoughts right now. So we will sit and talk a little bit about that experience you had, you know, because this was a visceral kind of like firsthand experience. So that definitely will need some time to kind of thank you, though, Roxanne. I always appreciate that you speak from experience. You know, I'm so lucky that everyone here 
has a very sincere approach in spirituality that you're not here to like learn dogma. You're not here to debate for the sake of debating. Like there's a, you know, so thank you for that, Roxanne. Um, but yeah, we'll unpack it. There was a really good point that Claire made um, that has been seconded a little bit by Mikey and Carla. And it's like, yeah. Do you remember in Game of Thrones, like the reason um, Jon Snow has to kill Daenerys is because he realizes that Daenerys's concept of good and evil is totally out of whack. Like she completely sees herself as good and she sees the others as evil. So the idea there is that as long as we maintain ourselves to be good and evil is something that happens out there separate from us, it always gives us the excuse that we aren't it. After all, it's categorically different, right? So what happens then when we decide to do things that to us seem like the best things to do? I mean, if your country was like robbed by France who didn't respect reparations, who didn't respect the Versailles Agreement, um, if you were like the international pariah after World War I, like to you, it might really seem like the correct thing to do for your nation, for your family, for the people that you love is to be a strongman leader and demand obedience. And remember that this, this was a phenomena that wasn't one man. You know, this was a phenomena that had Eichmann and, uh, you know, um, Goebbels and like a whole bunch of people. And there are arguments that talk about how Hitler has very little to do with Auschwitz and the stuff that happened far east, you know. Um, and there's arguments about him losing his mind when he invaded Russia. Um, and all these arguments that say that, like, it's too convenient to label one of humanity's worst failings conveniently as a character flaw in one fellow. You know, because that it's much harder to see that in Western civilization, we use science, record keeping, bookkeeping and civil like the peaks of civilization to commit some of the worst atrocities. And maybe that's on us, you know, and that's on mm -hmm. everybody. And I like love Victor Finkel stuff, you know, not Victor Finkel, Frankel, right? Frankel. Um, Frankel. Yeah. Victor Finkel is my friend from Monash University who is a debater there. Sorry. But I love his stuff because there's a lot of, you know, kind of ways in which we as humans need to like, I don't know, deal with this stuff or like think about it or put it into the crucible of philosophy and see what Tantra says. It's a hard bullet to bite. Um, uh, good night, Heather. Yeah, I was, um, Thank I just you. saw... Oh, sorry. I just saw that Sean commented um, something that I was thinking about as well. Um, when you asked that question, I don't know if you're American, but it sounds like you are, Roxanne. And this concept kind of really reminds me of this idea that um, a lot of people are saying with, you know, this phenomenon of Trumpism, that um, this is not who we are, you know, and um, historically, that's just not really true. And so if we um, cast Trump as the singularly evil um politician, uh, we miss out on all of the, the spider web, you know, all of these webs of um, racism and, and all of these, you know, classism and all of these isms. Um, so, yeah, I just thought that was a maybe salient example. Yeah, no, exactly right. Yeah, I think I'm speaking of something else beyond this, but I can't articulate it right now. So I certainly understand where everybody's coming from, but I, um, 
Uh, anyway, I'm sorry. I just can't articulate it tonight. No, I know what it, you mean, though, Roxanne. We're kind of talking about like ontological evil here as opposed to like social or relative evil. Because there's the kind of evil that we define as like, okay, we have certain standards for how you should act and behave. Those who make life better for others and make society safer, we call good. And those who like make life worse for others, we call bad. But there's something beyond that. I know, Roxanne, that you're kind of pointing at, which is the ontological idea of evil. And it's deeper. It's like maybe this like pernicious uh, beyond all society, an idea that's even older than like humans, you know, and you're right. You're right. That, that is there. Yeah. Yeah. It's an essence. It's, it's not like it's something, it's something that even if we ignored everything and were our worst impulses, it's not that. So are you guys arguing that there's uh like a primordial evil, essentially, or what? What, are you, what exactly? Is, well, like, the, that yeah, out that's, that just that's, seems to be in the universe, or what? Is, what is the argument? I mean, I, I anyway, I don't. I think no, no. I'm, I'm, genuine, I'm curious. I'm not trying to jump or attack by any means. I was. Oh I was no, curious. no, I didn't. I didn't think that. Um, I'm just. I'm just. It just. I can't really articulate it now. And but yes, that yes. What? I mean, it's not an argument. It's. It's just. It's something that I have, I have understood at a, at a cellular level and, and, and feared and, and left it, but, but, but know or question its existence. And yes, you know what? You're right. There is a gash or a fissure out of which all the demons come. And we're talking about the fissure. So the Buddha had this kind of intuition Ultimately, the Buddha had to face this evil. It's called Mara. You know, the story of the Buddha is that when he sat under the tree, he faced five demons. Four of them were like lesser demons. Do you know the story, Herschel and the Hanukkah goblins? It's like my favorite story. But Herschel goes to a town and nobody celebrates Hanukkah there. And they say it's because there are these Hanukkah goblins that on every night of Hanukkah come to ruin Hanukkah for anybody who celebrates it. Herschel, as like a Jewish mystic, says, I'm going to go to the haunted house at the top of the hill. I'm going to light the candles. And one by one, I'm going to meet and beat the demons. And, you know, it's a story of like beautiful Jewish intellect because he outsmarts every demon that comes after him, you know, uh, with like riddles and games. And what he's doing is that he's it's a mystical process whereby we do demonic evocation. The idea is that our demons are just forces inside of us that have fallen into disrepair because we've cast them into the void, so to speak. We've locked them up somewhere deep in our psyche. So they are traumas, they're complexes. Jung calls them fragmented selves, whatever it is. That's what a demon is. It haunts you. It steals your energy. It kind of whispers at you from a different dimension, far beyond society and consciousness. It's primordial. It comes from a place in your cells. We call this Vignana Maya Kosha, the deep mind or... I don't know. It's like, it's like a realm that Jung would call the collective unconscious. Anyway, so in this collective unconscious, there are certain demons, they're epigenetic complexes maybe, and the Buddha confronted all of them. He sat under the tree and he realized, I'm going to face myself in all of my gruesome nature. He looked inwards and rather than, you know, rejecting them, he like embraced them and loved them and uh, redeemed them so to speak. So it's like the myth of Solomon taking all the demons and putting them to work. It's like the myth of the Buddha and Mara, you know, so ultimately, yes, you do have to meet Mara. You have to meet this 
ultimate primordial evil. Jesus had to meet the devil after 40 days of fasting. You know, you will meet that. It's your big boss, you know. Yes, I have a, a maybe related question that I've been rattling. Um, enlightenment itself would then be like a neutral force, right? Um, like enlightenment is not good or evil or or light or darkness. It's just completely neutral. And there are other like forces at work. Hmm. But is that correct? There is a text called the Qumran War Scroll. And uh, it, it's one of those scrolls that they found in uh, in a place called Qumran or Nag Hammadi. Or it's like Jewish mysticism, but it's like early Christianity Gnostic stuff, you know. So, do you know about that, Roxanne? Yeah, yeah, I do. But I don't. I don't know that much. But I know about the scrolls, and I, I have books. But it, like they just every time I've looked at them, they just kind of like wash over me and I don't get oh, I know. They're very, They're very mysterious. Yeah. And the research is very extensive. The Essenes practice a lot of like sort of Buddhist and Hindu kind of ascetic practices where they, you know, suffer, you know, baptism. There's actually a kind of theory that it's actually a kind of mammalian dive instinct practice where you submerge someone underwater until you basically waterboard them into oxygen depravity and they have mystical experiences, you know? Um, so anyway, like there are these Essenes, they're practicing all this stuff and they have these scrolls and they put them in jars and they put the jars, they bury them so that, you know, they can protect themselves from inquisition. Well, it was, it was, it was the Masada. This is the story of the Masada where they, they ended up killing themselves. Everybody committed suicide. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. Super deep stuff. I love the history of like Jewish mysticism and the Nag Hammadi scrolls and all that stuff. But there's a scroll called the Qumran War Scroll. It's worth checking out. I think you can read a PDF online, but it's exactly what Claire was talking about. The Qumran War Scroll is a description of the forces of evil and light. So it's about, in, Enoch wrote it, apparently. Like the, the author is Enoch. So, you know, the vision of Enoch or whatever. So Enoch saw that there were fallen angels and they fell into the void. The leader of them, his name is Azazel. And he has a horde of like evil ones. And then Mikael and his horde of good ones are like fighting. And the battlefield is your body, is your mind, which is exactly Zoroastrian kind of concept of, you know, Ahura Mazda and Angra Manu. And they're like fighting. So you're right. There are these light and dark forces. And one incorrect way to think of it is that enlightenment is the light force. But you're right. Enlightenment is like a reconciling force. Because even in the Zoroastrian story, by the way, Zoroaster said that these two forces squared off against one another. Ahura Mazda, the Lord of Wisdom and Light, the good Lord of Light, versus Aingra Manu or Ahriman, the, the god of evil. Ahura Mazda, his first instinct was to make friends. You know, that he wanted to make friends. And Aingra Manu saw that as weakness and declared war. You know, so interestingly enough, enlightenment is the path, is light. It's, you know, literally, but it's, it's kind of associated to good forces. But it's better to think of it, I think you're right, Claire, as a higher emergent, maybe balancing neutral force. Sorry, um, did you talk about did you talk about what enlightenment is tonight because I don't know what enlightenment what we're referring to is that Yeah. Um do you remember the uh what is enlightenment talk Roxanne about Atma Bodha and uh, we did a yoga creation story? Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, 
I don't know if I put it together. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. no, exactly. So it's like, it's like um, what Jess is saying is quite important too, because, um, you know, Ishtar, the goddess Ishtar. Um, yeah, we'll review enlightenment. A lot of people are asking, but the goddess Ishtar is both the god goddess of love and the goddess of war. So that force of passion is seen both in its benevolent form and in its harmful form. So Ishtar is both those things. When the Christians later integrated Babylonian gods and goddesses, they demonized them. So Ishtar became, Ishtar or Astarte became Astaroth. Astaroth became a demon. So if you like practice with Astaroth, it's not so far as you're worshiping evil. A lot of Christians would have us believe that, the fundamentalist among them, but it's that you're working with the force known as Astarte or Ishtar, which was a goddess to the Babylonians. So which side is which is like totally um, matter of perspective. And just as right about Azazel, Azazel is Prometheus, who you could also see as Shiva because Prometheus, Azazel, and Shiva are all teachers of men. According to Enoch, Azazel taught men astrology, magic, politics, speechcraft, uh, bronze working, and how to darken the eyelash, right? So in the Qumran War Scroll, Azazel says this, to the, to the ignorant, I teach the art of weapon making so they can kill themselves and return to the source. To the vain, I teach the art of darkening the eyelash so they can be lost in the vanity of their own beauty. To the, to the, to the intelligent, I teach politics to mock the creator in making something in his own image. To the wise, I teach something better yet. I teach magic, you know? So Azazel is the great teacher of magic. And Enoch says those secular arts are bad because they distract you from God, you know, but as the, the Templars or people that talk, talk about this in kind of a, a more, you know, mature way, it's like the fall is not a fall. It's a dive. It's a plunge. It's a willing jumping into the, the void so that you can come back home, uh, new, like after an adventure, you know, the fool wants to jump in the tarot deck, the zero. The zero and the 21, uh, 22 are both the same card, right? The world and the fool. They're both hermaphrodites. One is at the beginning of the journey. One is at the end of the journey. So you can think of it this way, Claire. In the beginning of the journey, there's it's hermaphroditic. Male and female are one. At the end of the journey, it's also hermaphroditic. Male and female are one. But during the journey, two forces appear. One is a blue thread and one is a red thread. You can call the blue good and the red bad or the blue bad and the red good. If you spool two threads of blue and red together, you see a mirage of purple, right? Purple's not really there. So we can call purple um, spirit or, or I don't want to say that. Like, I don't even know how to describe purple, but purple is the illusion of making categories, maybe the illusion of ego or the illusion of seeing these two threads, threads as separate. Because that's, if you that's kind of what threads, I was getting on about earlier, huh? So what you just said is is kind of what I was trying to articulate with uh, trying to define an ego or a personality through words, and the, the the fact that it's essentially the ego is the active faculties of the human mind, whereas I think of the 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 self or whatever is more the passive, uh, like lower preverbal sense of self. Sure. Um, yeah, but the. Uh, but those, those, uh, as you're saying, it's it's like an epiphenomenon. It's it's not the thing. It can't be. It can't possibly be the thing. It's an abstraction of the thing that's coming out 
Yes. From it's from. Exactly. It's an epiphenomenon. So when someone says Azazel to me, I'm like, God, demon, both the same to me. You know, like fallen, risen, like those words mean nothing. Good or bad mean nothing because you see them as purple. So you can respect duality without, or you can like enjoy the game of like these two tug of war forces without ascribing any particular value or judgment on either of them. You know? Well, I think this bodes well for your argument. Not to say that I disagree with you that everything is one thing because these forces are within us, but they're also just simple choices that we make that like simple choices of like whether or not to push them out of the way. Yes. Excuse me. That's really good, Claire. And do you mean in the sense of like, they can be useful in different circumstances and we can make choices based on the needs of that circumstance? Yeah. There's a game, right? Where it's like, okay, right now, think about the thing you least like about yourself. Like the thing that drives you nuts, that haunts you, that makes you feel the worst about yourself. Like think about that and um, start to bring that feeling to mind and give it a form. So start to visualize it, give it like a character and you'll probably create a demon out of it or maybe something else, you know, like if you have anger issues, you might like make it into a red thing with claws and teeth or something. I don't know. Maybe does anyone here want to participate and volunteer their their demon? It's pretty vulnerable to do so. Let me pause the recording just so. Uh, entities that don't serve you earlier today. So yeah, it's been one continuous conversation for like 24 hours for me. <laughs> That's good, yes. But thank you for this talk. Lifelong conversation for us all. What do you do on Sunday? Uh, so I have a group right now with Grace and Austin and anyone else, you know, just... Um, what is it? Grace, Austin, Caroline, Casey, some of the people that you've seen here, we're doing a Reiki initiations, you know, so, um, just into Reiki one, we've been practicing together every Sunday. Uh, I'm doing another one in February if you want to hop on. Um, but it's nice, you know, we meet every Sunday and we kind of, we do the, we have a ritual and the ritual is the initiation. So it's a lot in, huh? What time do you do it? Oh, since the groups change every cycle, I adjust it based on who's present Mm -hmm. in the group. So we kind of structure it like, okay, if there are four or five people, I design the ritual around those five people and what I think they'll enjoy. And then we all come together and decide what times we want to meet, but it's three meetings. So we meet thrice. The first one is about ritual, how it works. And then we do the ritual. The second one is about the history of Reiki and aura and how we can work with energy. And the third lecture is about various alternative ways to apply Reiki and tools and um, preparation for Reiki too. Yeah, it's cool. It's kind of fun. So yesterday we were talking a lot about the aura. So it's nice that we're here continuing about these gods and goddesses. Yes. Casey, how are you doing over there, brother? Doing good. Just listening, enjoying. Welcome to the family. We haven't seen you here before, but we're happy to have you. I've been listening to all the podcasts, catching up with all your lectures and stuff. Wonderful. Wonderful. Where are you streaming from, Casey, right now? Uh, Kentucky. Welcome from Westwood, Los Angeles, which is where I am. Yeah. And Claire's all the way up in Canada. (laughs) <laughs> so far away from us, but never further than our next breath. What part of Canada? I live in Southern Ontario. 
with everybody else, really. <laughs> <laughs> that lovely dog. Yes. That's so crazy, Nish. Yeah. I used to live on Beverly Glen, just like about half mile north of UCLA. That's weird. <laughs> so wild. Yeah, that's where I went to school, did philosophy there. That's nice. So I kind of, I'm still at Westwood, you know. My, I don't know too much about it. I've been, or I kind of looked into a little bit of, um, what's it called? It's the, uh, I would say like the newest chakra system. Um, um, by that one woman. Um, Anadea uh, Judith? Mm, no, I don't think so. Um, I forgot what it's called, but um, I know, I know that it, the 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 image that that it is is the seven chakra system with the two the two yes. cords. Yeah. Yes. No, actually, they don't. They don't um, intersect. They're actually one is on one side, one is on the other, and then oh. they intersect in the. Um, Agnia? Yeah. yeah. And then one side is the ego, one side, and then one side is the ego, one side is the super ego, and then Kundalini is at the bottom. Um, and then there is this big, massive center um, between the two chakras, um, the sacral and the... Um, Umbar or uh, solar plexus chakra. Yes, I think so. But that 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 would be the void. But I don't I don't fully understand the difference between the void and the ego. Like I know that there is kind of a difference there, but I don't necessarily fully understand that difference, you know? One thing I would say is I love to mix metaphors, so I often dip very freely into every tradition I can put my fingers into. Sam, I love I love the the mixture of everything because I feel like similarly we believe that all religions are the same in in the way that everything yeah. But let me suggest though that within each system, don't mix the metaphors. So given right. that every religion is a metaphor for one truth, it it allows you to move about through religions. But be careful in and insofar as you're pointing out like um, similarities like uh, Freud's ego, id, superego, and then relating that to nowhere, no, no, like that's all good. But um, the chakra system is like very specific. Yeah. And like you should maintain the internal coherence of any system. Then it better acts as a comparative tool for other systems. Right. Like, as you mentioned, like the new chakra model, like that's okay, but it's important to like have a real grounding in the traditional chakra model. Right. And I tried, I tried, um, going a little bit deeper into that. I read this article about like the traditional, like the Sanskrit, um, like what it really is because, the I know that the seven chakra system now just the basic um like root and going up I don't know all of the names and everything I know that that's a very whitewashed and westernized concept because of the one that one guy who yes and no yes and Correct. no because Paramahansa Yogananda does use a sapta chakra system a seven chakra right. so you have evidence of Hindu or I wouldn't say Hindu but uh, Indian yogis using right. the seven chakra system. So the idea that like, you know, I saw that video too. And uh, um, that fellow and that he's a good gentleman. He's done a lot of good work, but him and I have crossed swords on TikTok multiple times because he's got a kind of militant Hinduism where he seems to think that there's a correct and a wrong way to be 
practice, you know, I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. But the idea is that um, there is a seven chakra model that gets used, but it's most commonly a five chakra model. Yeah, I, I, I did that. That's the, the um, more or less the Tibetan. Um, tantra. Or is it? It's Tantra. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. the, yes, 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 yes. That's yeah. what it is. Not Tibetan. Yeah. Yeah. There is a Tibetan Tantra, like a Buddhist Tantra, but Chakra starts with um, maybe fifth century Northern Indian Kashmiri Shaivism. Like that's kind of okay. where it starts. Okay. Um, and you're right. There, are, it's arcane literature. Like the Tantra Sastras are like arcane. There's so many different ones, so many different ideas. But generally speaking, the, it's not about the chakras. Like people, I think, fixate on the chakras. It's more about the Ida, Pingala, and Shushumna. So those three yeah. panels. It's more about that. So the idea, and we did a meditation. I think Roxanne, you were there for it on Friday, where we were trying to combine the two channels. One is solar and one is lunar. So Hatha mm-hmm. Yoga, esoterically, Ha means sun and Ta means moon. So esoterically, Hatha Yoga is the practice of bringing together Ida and Pingala. Um, so to see them as ego and superego might actually be kind of good because you see, like the word Pingala means reddish brown. It's called mm-hmm. reddish brown because when you exhale, it's like hot. It's solar. Right. And the exhalation takes your consciousness out into the world. So it's extroverted. Ida kind of means refreshing. That's the way it's translated. And it means when you inhale, it's cooling, literally. And it brings to you the object of your cognition so you can enjoy it in your internal space. Right. So the point of yoga is not actually to breathe deeply. It's to stop breathing. You know? right. So okay. when you stop breathing, there is a moment where the Ida and Pingala can co-mingle if you have this mystic union the red and the white coming together something shoots up your spine known as kundalini rising the guy on the tiktok video uh, mukunda was right oh sorry let me just the guy um was right insofar as he claimed that um kundalini in some cultures is seen as an obstacle in some cultures she's a goddess and she's like looking for her lover, Shiva, who is up here in the crown chakra. So yoga is the process of bringing the goddess up to the heart and bringing him down to the heart so they can have their date. Right. So in other cultures though, like DKV Desikachar's um, Heart of Yoga, he talks about Kundalini as a klesha, meaning it's like that which keeps you from your spirituality. You can see this as the myth of the dragon, right? That the knight needs to slay. So the dragon is like your biology or your innate biological tendencies that keeps you out of the rather anti-dorosia, like, you know, keeps you in a survival mode. So once you slay the dragon, you free up your spiritual energy. So yes, you can see it that way. It's important though, to think of the chakras as energy centers along the Shushumna. They are never blocked. They're always open. Um, they it's only a matter of accessing them and you can't access them unless you are fusing together the Ida and Pinkala. You know? Um, right. Yeah, that's that's the tantric chakra system. So with the, so one of the things that you said is that one of the, um, what are they called? The, the two, the cords, I forgot what they're the called. The nadis. Nadis, okay, okay. So not that one is the ego and one is the super ego, but once they intersect at the um, 
Yeah. yeah. Once they do that, one side is the ego. One side is the super ego, not the entire um, one. And also, I didn't actually see um, a video on it, but um, I, I guess I'll check it out just to see his point of view of it. Um, I read it was it was an article and I could I could look it up and I could send it to you. Um, and also I'll look up the, the chakra system that I was talking about, because I know it's not necessarily new age, but, um, I can look it up real quick just so I can like get some reference points. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always interested in all these new systems that are coming up. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, yeah, Roxanne, I remember on Friday, I was hoping to get to some of your questions, but we didn't have a a moment to yeah my questions are still unformed kind of and and they and they and they're probably off topic um i mean the one thing that is running through my mind but i i, I need to look into what it is a bit more it it's a, it has to do with like the which i i glanced at your post was it maybe last week where you had put the um the tree of life, the, the Kabbalistic tree of life down. And, and I've seen that related to the chakra system through Carolyn Mace's work. And um, um, so, th so there's kind of a, a, a relationship here, but it, it's more about that. Um, the, my question, it's not for tonight, I think, but it is about um, meditation tools of design um, visualizations, you know, kind of like the, um, Tibetan mandalas and, and, and tools for going into thought. And it relates to the experience that I had, but it, again, it's, it's, it's a, it's a different, a different conversation, but I, I am curious about how the, the, um, the Kabbalistic tree relates to the chakra system, but. Yeah, no, I love that Roxanne. I love that. Anyway, this is after hours, um, after party so like don't worry about being off topic because this is just like free for all <laughs> hang out <laughs> thank you cal good and night to trinidad the other questions were again about enlightenment um because i've asked i have a um somebody who i'm studying with and you know like he describes enlightenment as just you know knowing that you're not that um basically. Um, yeah, I, so yeah, just the question of like, you know, or, oh, and then well, when you were talking about, um, was it talking about Vivekananda or Vivekananda's teacher? Um, and you were saying, and then, and then he was enlightened there. And then he went to this religion and then he got enlightened there and he got enlightened again. And I'm like, what does that mean to get enlightened again and again? Like it didn't, I, I, it, led to further questions for me. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, it's such a good question because there are kind of like two um, sides to it because one is the experience of enlightenment, which is a mystic experience described in many ways. Like alchemists call it the marriage, right? Of the white, red lion and white eagle. Hatha yogis mm -hmm. call it the co-mingling of the red pingala and the white ida. <laughs> Do you see there's like, so there's always this idea that two things are coming into one. So mystic union is when mind and body come together in the third thing. It's like discovering the Trinity. So it's, it's, it's couched in a lot of symbolism and metaphor, but the actual event 
of mystic union or non-dual awareness can be um, in Indian spirituality. I say Indian instead of Hindu, but can be called nirvikalpa samadhi. Mm-hmm. So this is a word that means nirvikalpa. Uh, so, sorry, I didn't, I didn't spell that wrong. I spelled that wrong. No, no, I'm good. So um, this word means without any, um, without any preconceived notions about how reality is. So as long as we are unenlightened, we are projecting or the better technical term for it is superimposing onto reality mental constructs, in other words, mental categories. So our mind is always performing this function of dividing into lines what is otherwise an infinitely complex magical reality. Now, vikalpa is the name for a label or a construct. So if you look at a tree and you see it, the first thing you think is that's a tree, that's a vikalpa. You know, you're identifying, you're labeling, you're separating. So near Vikalpa Samadhi refers to an instance whereby you see the world, perhaps for the first time, without the mental constructs. So it means to go beyond mm-hmm. your mind, so to speak. That's why it's kind of hard to describe. Once you experience Nirvikalpa Samadhi, you certain things happen. First of all, you forget your body. Uh, the world sorts of like <laughs> fades away and you have this ecstatic yeah. vision of you being everything. So that's usually what I mean when I say in light. Here's the thing though. When you come back from that, uh, since it's nirvikalpa samadhi, you are kind of washed clean of any samskaras, meaning past impressions. In a way, you are reset and you're like a baby in your innocence and freshness and you stay enlightened usually, you know? So when I say Ramakrishna got enlightened repeatedly, he had this experience in the different contexts of various religions, practicing exclusively with your method. You know, mm-hmm. um, there is for some people, this thing called Sabija Samadhi, which is a different order of experience. And it sometimes doesn't integrate. So this is like the born again Christian phenomena where you have a powerful mystic experience, but it doesn't kind of internalize so you're left now with like a memory of that experience but you're back to all your old ego trappings so it is possible that maybe ramakrishna had the experience and then maybe kind of relapsed a little bit and then did it again and had the experience again and then maybe relapsed a little bit and finally when he finished (laughs) tasting the smorgasbord of all spirituality he was fully enlightened There is a theory called Mm -hmm. uh, lower Christology in the study of Jewish mystical studies that argues that Jesus was the son of God, not from the start, but only after he was crucified. So he kind of like Mm -hmm. wasn't born the son of God. He was exalted the son of God. Then there's another theory called higher Christology. I might be mistaking the two, but I believe higher Christology refers to the set the the fact that he was always enlightened even before he was born when he was born the three magi knew that he was you know the the one and ramakrishna is seen like that ramakrishna is the, the avatar you know he was mm-hmm. never incarnated before he took an incarnation as ramakrishna and he was enlightened from the start if you mm-hmm. think about it that way it sounds absurd mm-hmm. when i say he was enlightened repeatedly right since enlightenment is his resting default state. So you're right to point that out, Roxanne. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so like that's the technical definition of what I mean. The mystical experience categorized by the word nirvikalpa samadhihi. So when uh, Buddha talk about like these layers of enlightenment, like stream entry, then I forget the next one, then anagami, like once returner, then arahant, non-returner. Can you speak to those, to, to her question? Is, is there a way that you could, in a more granular way, describe it? I've always yeah. been very confused by this non-returner aspect because for I, I think I fall a little bit into that category of having seen it and then crossed back like the Christian what born again that you were talking about like where it was my body was just not a place where it could integrate i think and uh, and so that sort of work but i'm curious so non-returner still kind of has a scary thing for this uh for, for this weird straddling of the fence that i am between a non-dual experience and still kind of caring about self you know could is there a way that you could dispel those fears other than just obviously as you get to the non-dual those cares go away like what, yeah. what is non-returner? Can they choose to come back and incarnate? Like, It's a great question, it. Mikey. And you know what? A lot of this in the yogic literature is a physiology question. It's like, are your nerves physiologically able to handle the onslaught of electrical force that comes with these mystic experiences? That's really all it is. Um, Jess, okay. it was so nice to have you here. I hope I'll see you again. Thank you so much for all of your comments. Thank you, Jess from Ireland. I'm so happy that Jess said hello from Ireland. Yes, we're always on at 7 p.m. Monday. Uh, Thank you for all that you contributed today, Jess. Your understanding is so mature. And I loved all of the input that you had for us today. Wow, 6 a.m. in Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Jess. I hope I'll meet you again. There's so many people on TikTok that I meet for a little bit and never see ever again. Some of them become lifelong friends like Mikey. But I hope I'll see you again, Jess. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, so a lot of it has to do with a physiological question of like, these states are physical events. Like remember we were talking about Spinoza and stuff. If your body isn't like kind of set up to handle that, you're going to realize, I mean, things can happen. One, you can have a very distinctly uncomfortable experience reintegrating. For me, I remember one time there was um, cramps. Do you know like muscle cramps? Like you get in your leg all over my body, like horrible pain, you know? And it's just like, oh, what I could not. Form of, were you experiencing like a form of having to detach from the clinging of that form of suffering? Like, is is was that sort of one aspect of formation you were having to let go of, like pain itself, or is it just literally a physiological side effect, or was it kind of part of the path? Do you think? Yeah, I actually I haven't really analyzed that experience so much because I was so not there for it. All I remember was the searing pain of my entire body contracting in like a spasm, like a muscle spasm. And then I knew like, it was like almost as if something was happening, you know, something was occurring and it started with my hamstrings where it was like a kind of feeling like it was like, I don't know how to describe it better than to say it was like an orgasm in my whole muscle. It was like an explosion. It was very ecstatic. And it was in my, the two hamstrings and it kind of like spread around and felt like hot and pins and needles, but intensely pleasurable. And then as there was something culminating, I didn't, couldn't make sense of it. It got hijacked by this spasm. And I think what happened was, is that my body rejected or like just spat it out or just couldn't deal with it. And so that's what the Hatha yoga is for. Like you practice your asana, you practice your pranayama to prepare your body physiologically for psychic uh, events like mystic union, you know? So that's one way to look at it. 
And I guess that's the more grounded, practical way. You start mm-hmm. with what we call as a Savitarka Samadhi, where you uh, meditate with objects, you know, so you meditate with the lotus flower or like the image of a lotus flower and you experience a mystical experience there. And that's the lowest order of union. It's you with one thing. Supposedly, this will give you power over the thing. So you will learn everything there is to know about that thing. If you do it with an atom, as many scientists have done in our modern culture, you will get nuclear power because you'll understand the atoms, you know? So you can do it with anything. It's, it's a low-grade low form of mystical experience. You go higher, you have Savichara Samadhi, where you do it with abstract concepts like beauty and truth. Doing this will give you a mystic unit and a powerful experience. You go a little higher, you do it with Sa, Asmi, uh, Sa Ananda Samadhi, so you can do it with your bliss, meditating just on your bliss. You go a little higher and you have Sa Asmita Samadhi. All of these, though, are known as Sa Bija, meaning Samadhi with seed. That's what uh, Bija means. Samadhi kind of means... What's that? Seed. Seed, yeah. And you can think of seed as object of meditation. So it's always like kind of you and a thing and you're meditating on this one thing. And after a while, your focus becomes so absolute where it's only an unbroken stream of energy between your mind and that thing that causes a mystic union. You collapse into the thing, the thing collapses into you. The knowing, the known and knower all collapse into one. It gives you an experience. Okay, so is that like... Okay, that really helps map that for me. Okay, so then in like insight meditation, when, when we're meditating on that place in the breath, we're meditating on like the impermanence of the breath, sort of the vibrate, or I guess that would be almost the possible, right? Like the sort of the frame rate or the flickering and impermanence of the breath. And then it gets to that bottom part that you're talking about in that gap. And you sort of, and I guess they call it the fruition. And, and it's weird because it feels like the toroid unwraps of your consciousness. And then it's like burst and there's almost a cessation where it just like, there's a blip and you're, is that the same or is, is that like the seed or is that kind of a different thing? That's, that's it. That's it. So Vipassana meditation uses as it's, you know, they will argue differently, but I argue that yeah, it yeah, uses yeah. as it's dharana, that sensation of breath. So like an anapana, you know, like when you're learning the physical action of like, you know, all that stuff, essentially it's using a dharana, which is a focus point. And you will have a samadhi according to the subtlety of your dharana. So the, the right. most subtle thing is your pure subjective existence, separate from objects of experience. So if you're able to meditate on your I-ness, you know, self or, or impermanence or suffering itself is what they, they use it. Like they'll, they'll do it where they're, they're meditating on one on the breath, but they're meditating on the, no self of the breath or the suffering of the breath or the impermanence of the breath. And then yeah. depending on which door they go through is changes the kind of fruition or the, that, that moment or event that they have. Yeah. So that's just changing the seed and changing the union you're talking about, the, what you're collapsing into. That's what I would say on a theoretical level. But unfortunately, Mikey, while I'm very happy to like talk theory in terms of other religious oh, yeah. traditions, I only know them on like an intellectual and scriptural level as like they kind of corroborate with my own experiences. But I can only speak to you as a yogi, you know, because those are the only, that's like the, the tradition in which I had, you know, my own personal experiences. So when it comes to the experience of a Vipassana type meditation, 
although I have sat with Vipassana people, I didn't learn that way. So I can't, I don't want to like say something that I think might be. Read it and translate. Thank you so much. So do you think that not like in the yoga traditions, does these aspects of like non-returners and once returners in terms of the reincarnation have a like a, a parallel? Yes, that is a very strong parallel. The idea there is like, okay, on two levels. One, if you have a sabija samavihi, what will happen is you'll come back from the experience and you will have spontaneous knowledge. So it's kind of like Moses coming down from the mountain. You'll just know stuff. You'll know stuff about the world. You'll like see the matrix, so to speak. You get a glimpse, but it doesn't burn out your samskaras. So another way to translate sabija, by the way, that seed doesn't refer to the object. It refers to your samskaras. So deep down inside, there are seeds in you that will flower into actions, dispositions, thoughts. It's all buried in you from your cellular memory, as Roxanne pointed out earlier, from your not only your life traumas, but your epigenetic traumas as a member of this collective unconscious, you know? Um, so these are your bijas, your seed. They can flower into karma for you at any time. So there could be seeds right now of like millionaire life or throat cancer or like whatever, these samskaras. Sabija samadhi does not burn the seeds, so to speak. So even though it gives you a powerful spiritual event, you can relapse at any time during this or the next incarnation. Here's the thing. Since Sabija samadhi did not burn your seeds, you will have to take another incarnation because you have to keep taking incarnations until all your seeds are either lived out, meaning all your karma is experienced or all your seeds are burnt out. So in one of the lines in book two, Heyam Dukkam Anugatanam, it says, the suffering that you cannot avoid, you can learn to endure. Yoga will teach you how to endure what you cannot avoid, but yoga will teach you how to avoid what you don't have to endure. So if you get what we call nirbija, nirbija samadhi, which by the way, is exactly the same as nirvikalpa samadhi. They're the same kind of experience, but this nirbija samadhi means without seed. This is the kind of mystical union that is so strong that it burns out all your samskaras. You can even think of this as something in your cellular memory, like your DNA changes such that it cleans the slate of any like proteins that are going to express themselves from that point on. (laughs) For just a little bit more translation, and I'm sorry, I hope we didn't hijack Roxanne's question. I hope that this is... Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Roxanne. What is enlightenment Uh, is the question. Yeah, yeah. Um, So these these seeds of this karma, with the translation across, like, I heard somewhere someone say that, like, jhana meditation that was around before the Buddha and everything was to purify these seeds. Is that true? Does does that burn it up? Like, meditating on the boundless space, boundless consciousness... Is that the kind that you're talking about? There, there is that too. So the Buddhists have a technique uh, and, and it comes from Tantra actually, where it's just you sit and you create a space of loving acceptance. So if you're able to meditate on that mindfulness, it can kind of like, I don't know, tell your subconscious that it's okay to express seeds now. And you can in your mind, let a seed grow and finish it without it having to come and be in the world. It's a very high form of samadhi, um, a very high form of meditation practice. I do have a scripture on that and I'll go and consult it and come back to you. 
and yeah. tell you what I find there. But it's it's uh, what's it called? It's like it's a name. Shambhuta practice, or there's a name for it, but you're right. It's a style of meditation. It's kind of separate from what I was telling you about though, because I described to you Patanjali's four-tiered Samadhi model, Savitarka, Savichara, Saananda, Saasmita. And then above that, Nirvikalpa or Nirbija. That's in Patanjali Yoga Sutra. That's from book one, Samadhi Pada, Samadhi Pada. So you can read that. Um, as to this experience, it comes from Tantra, and it is a style of meditation also, but I, I have to read more for you. Yes. I want to let other people go and I haven't formulated the rest. But Roxanne, that does kind of, I think, quite inclusively handle what is enlightenment, right? Yeah. I believe it to be the same as Atma Bodha, self-realization, Brahma Jnana, um, knowledge of God, um, Buddhahood, and uh, what else? What other words are there for it? Um, oh, moksha, liberation. Mukti, liberated. So you would call Ramakrishna a jivan mukti, meaning liberated while still being in a body and being in life. You know, jivan mukti. Yeah. I did go to a, a mass in Brussels once where the uh, priests interpreted um, Christ's moment of baptism as his moment of enlightenment. And it was at the moment that like, he, um, oh my God, John the Baptist baptized him that he became enlightened. And at that point, that's the, the word the son of God, like where the, the phrase son of God was referring to, that's when he became the son of God. So that's when he became enlightened yes, at that yes. moment. So he became God's son when he became enlightened. And it's not like the way that it gets interpreted all the time. It's just that moment of enlightenment. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, Claire. I think more people, it's called lower Christology, right? Like the thing I was talking about earlier about was Christ always born into his role or was there a moment in which he like was exalted into it? And some scholars say it was when he was crucified, like that's when he became the son of God. And I like this one. I haven't heard this one before, Claire, but I really like it. Like he was baptized and that's when he had his mammalian dive instinct kick in and had his first mystical experience. And because he does say in many places, like you will do greater works than this. And I can, and I think Paul and Galatians say, ye sons of God, you know? Mm -hmm. so and when you were talking about... Um uh like so when we were talking about suffering and then realizing where you are in the theater and then recognizing other people's suffering i was thinking about um i'm gonna butcher this because i can't memorize scripture but when he says i will i'm with you now and i will go from you and there will be sorrow and i will return from you and all of your term return to you and all of your sorrow will be joy and you will ask nothing of me exactly <laughs> all your sorrow will be joy Ugh. Oh, it's all been said before so beautifully and I love it. <laughs> I'm going to go to bed because my horrible cat master has become destructive. <laughs> yes, Claire, take your cat and go to bed. Thank so you so much. You. Hope to see you Thursday. I always enjoy I will come Thursday, yes, of course. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, I don't know if you saw, um, but I it's I put it in the chat, but it I did look it up. It's called subtle yoga or um subtle the subtle system sorry yeah. um i see it subtle see. chakra system yes i will check it out 
Give it a look. This is, I don't know if you can see, yeah, this is what it looks like. Okay, I see. Yeah, cool, cool. No, they're, yeah, no, definitely very correct in a lot of ways. Like the right side being the solar side, the left side being the lunar side. There is a big gulf between the Manipura and the Anahata because that's the gulf between the lower three power sex security centers and the higher compassion center. Like this is why uh, the chakra system is a little complicated because a lot of people in the West use it as a terms of psychological kind of explanation. Yeah. So when someone right. has a problem with like their expression, they call it throat it, chakra, but not right. at all. Tantra, it's second chakra. How you express yourself is all second chakra. It's got nothing yeah. to do with throat chakra. Um, how you love is all second chakra. So almost everything you can talk about only concerns the lower three chakras. Okay. Everything above the lower three chakras are straight spiritual experiences that um, don't have a corollary in daily day-to-day life, you know? Right. Yeah. So that's why that gulf is there. It shows you that the gulf is between this realm that we can talk about and that realm, which is kind of like non-dual experiences. Okay. But I still use the Western chakra system. I still use like, it's convenient, right? It's not traditional. It's not true, but it's convenient to be like, yeah, thinking is your crown. Astral sight is your eye. Hearing is your throat. Love is your heart. Sure. Sure. Right. Yeah, it's a helpful psychological model for most people. Exactly. And that the gulf that you were talking about is actually, that's the void that it, it is representing. So, yes. Yes, it's really hard to understand the heart chakra. It's in fact your first, like you only understand the heart chakra if you become Jesus. Like if you awaken to the fact that you are, it's not love, it's compassion. It's a different yeah. word. Like love has the other you know, whereas Jesus's love does not use the other. He sees himself as one with all. And until you are willing to be crucified for the sake of all, you haven't experienced the heart chakra. Right. And um, I read somewhere that it, and I think you said this earlier, that it's the, it's the connecting of the the two. Right. Um, And there was one, one other thing that I wanted to bring up. I forgot what it was. Um, I will think of it. You're right, though. Definitely correct. Um, the Ida and Pingala and Shushumna are more important to you as a spiritual seeker than the chakras. In fact, the chakras are total byproducts of spirituality. The chakras are just there for you to verify that you're ascending up the spinal column because each of them give you gives you a power and an experience. Right. You know, so you'll hear like the sound of humming uh, sorry, the sound of a bumblebee in your root chakra. You'll hear the sound of a vena in your second chakra, you know, like stuff like that. Um, but in your meditation, there are trifles. They're not that big of a deal. Right. I think I remember what I was going to say. It was one of the mantras that I use on a daily because I like to consider myself if most of anything I like to not believe in, but like, um, I guess believe in more like Buddhist um philosophy i guess so one of the um, mantras that i use is om mani padme ham yes yeah um and i read somewhere that it has to it the where it first um came from i guess was the um forgot what it's called it starts with an s um 
like the the book or not the book but the 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 scripture i guess where it comes from um karanda vyahu sutra yeah yes 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 century sutra the, the karanda vyahu sutra that's where omane padmehom first appears in the 5th yes. century yes and how it it correlates that with um i'm so horrible with names so Ponyan, this is avalokiteshvara Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Um and that he, that Buddha is the the Buddha of compassion. Yes, Avalokiteshvara. Yes. yes. I'll write his name here. So I don't know why I just felt like I had to bring that up because cuz like cuz you said compassion in the heart chakra and and yeah. Yes, I've worked with this um Omane Padme home for quite some time too and I love it to death. Avalokiteshvara is there. I don't know if you can see him but he's up there on my wall. And uh mm-hmm. he is one of my favorite teachers cuz his name literally means like the teacher of the world. Right. You know, and yeah, Omane Padme home is beautiful because if you've worked with the energy of Avalokiteshvara, it's very feminine. There's like a feminine energy to it. And mm-hmm. it's like that compassion. It's funny because there are scholars that say mane padme. Mane means jewel, padme yep. means lotus. So there are some scholars that say in, you know, traditionally the 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 mantra means the jewel meaning the teaching of the Buddha put into the lotus of your heart or a mystic union between male and female, the lotus representing mm-hmm. the yoni and the jewel representing the lingam. So, you know, but There is a scholar who suggested that Manipanme is a name of a deity in of itself. I think I read this. Yeah. Yeah, and that deity might be like a prototype Quan Yin. You know, like an early Quan Yin. So, Om Manipanme home working with Avalokiteshvara might also work with Quan Yin. And those are energies of like humorous compassion, very heart chakra. Those people who love Jesus will love Quan Yin. It's like a like the same kind of vibration, you know. Right. But yeah. Yeah. What? I was just going to say I found it all very interesting and yeah, very good. Yeah. Check out Tantra Illuminated by uh Christopher Harish Wallace. So if you're interested in chakras and tantra and hatha yoga and stuff like that, Tantra Illuminated is really good because it gives you kind of like a lot of primary sources to go and look at yourself, but it also gives you a lot of um uh what do you say? Good kind of secondary uh descriptions of like what the traditional chakra system is versus modern interpretations yeah right i don't i don't know if you know um i was on on tiktok that's how i found you i'm white boy shawn so i i was yeah cool um, welcome i'm so happy when i see people in real life who screen me right. i just know you know i know right. white boy shawn <laughs> You know you know the name now you know the face. Yeah. I feel that love I love that too. Um I actually which which was really interesting because you had recommended I had asked for book recommendations and you recommended that and I was like I already have that book on my list. Nice. So I was like all right well now I got to do it now. Now right. you got to have it. Right. So it's so cool. Yeah yeah yeah. Okay. I wish on Thursday nights it's so frustrating to me I'm so like so much of this is just going way over my head no I doubt it Roxanne I really doubt it you're just you're like a trooper you're here in the after hours party just taking it all in just (laughs) I hope these words are serving you in some small way Roxanne I hope 
I'm of some help to you today. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Sure it is. I enjoy it so Thank much. So, yeah. I have so much fun sitting with you. It's mutual. <laughs> and after all, the best thing is that the words don't matter at all. We could be talking about like, I don't know, the weather and the effect will be the same. <laughs> so. Are you um, like knowledgeable in... Um, nope. <laughs> I can answer that right now. Nope. <laughs> I'm still going to say it just maybe if you are in mudras, like, like how you were talking about earlier. Um, so something that I said, so I started watching your TikTok live and then I went to the, um, the Zoom just because I wanted to be more involved, I guess. Yeah, thank you. Um, one of the questions that I had, or not even questions, one of the things that I had commented was that there are these um, hand symbols that I've been doing for quite some time, even before even trying to yes. understand everything. And then a few days ago, I had been looking up, um, I forgot exactly what I was looking up, but eventually I had stumbled onto Mudras and I found these, the, these Japanese um, um, texts or not even text scrolls, I guess that have, two of the exact ones that I've been doing, I don't even know what they mean. You know what I mean? Um, and Wait, keep one going. of them- I'm getting something from my bookshelf, keep going. Okay, um, one of them, and I don't, I, I've looked at um, like the, the hand and finger and knuckle representations of like what means what, when, and how it's being put together and everything. Um, I don't fully understand it because for me as an individual, it takes me like a lot of reprocessing to fully understand something, right? Um, one being um, my three fingers down, my thumb, my middle, my pointer, and then I bring these two down. And then also one being, what is it? I think it's just... Yeah, it's my middle fingers down and then these two together. Yeah, which wow. I I have no idea what they mean, but I feel whenever I do them feel. when I'm at it, I can feel this this immense, not even immense, but it's just this very calming sensation throughout my entire body, which is something that I feel a lot when I meditate, but even even not meditating, just sometimes just out of nowhere but mostly when I meditate, but when I, sometimes when I meditate, I don't feel anything, but then once I do a certain mudra or I say something or I fully, it's like that full relaxation where my muscles just fully, like your shoulders go down, you feel that weight and everything. But sometimes I just do it and I, I still feel that tenseness in my body. But once I do it, that tenseness goes away, even though I know that the tense is still there, you know? <laughs> I'm really lucky because, you know, this small boy has been given a really big family of incredibly powerful mystics and teachers. Almost everybody I have the good fortune of meeting is like so versed in the experiences of meditation, you know. 
Um, and it's beautiful because I, I don't know if you remember, um, Sean, but in the beginning of today's lecture, I described that mudras and asana were invented, or at least they were expressed by people who were in spiritual states. So they yeah. weren't created as tools to get to spirituality. They were something that you spontaneously do when you are right. in a high f- frequency state. So the fact that mudras are coming to you is a great sign. Your body is responding to the energy. Part of it though, and we discussed earlier, it's a physiology thing. If you're getting a lot of electricity, your body needs to like know how to channel it. Yeah. So in a way you will naturally, like your immune system does this all the time, every day, right now. It's just doing its own kind of automatic autonomous. So you'll do that. Um, here's the thing. I will give you this thing. I really like this a lot. Um, it's really simplified, <laughs> but I think it does the job. It's called yeah. mudras for awakening the energy body. Okay. And I mean, uh, I- yeah, here it is. Mudras for awakening the energy body. And it's not all the mudras because there are quite a few. And remember, a mudra doesn't mean hand position, by the way. I just want to get that very clear because that's what it means. To here. It means an right. attitude. But, you know, okay. it's like they label them by the chakras, which again is, you know, a Western effect. But, you know, I just like how they just got all these like cute little cartoon mudras and you can just kind of go through all the different chakras and it's fun, you know? I enjoy kind of seeing these because there's so many in here that I don't know. And it's just great. Do they have the like meaning or like the, the behind it? Behind it. It like describes the mudra, it describes the effect and like what, you know, what instructions there are. And there's even like a little new age um, affirmation. Like this one says, my courage and self-assurance is unwavering. Like it's corny. I'm not going to lie. It's like straight up corny, but it's like a guilty pleasure of mine. <laughs> right. What's it? What's it called again? Mudras uh, for? It's by, um, it's written by Alison Nicola, and the artwork is by Sabina Espinay and it's called Mudras for Awakening the Energy Body. Okay. I think, yeah, I found it. Awesome. Yeah, It's, it's fun. It's a tarot deck. It's not a book. Uh, it's, it's a little fun little oracle right. deck kind of thing, you know? So, right. yeah, that's something I have on my, uh, my shelf in my yoga studio, because I always have students who are so interested, like, you know, cause I'll be like, okay, do this. We're in Gyan Mudra now. And they'll be like, what about others? You know, I want to learn others. So I'll be like, okay, here's up and, uh, uh, Ishvara Pranidana Mudra. And they'll just want to learn it all. So I'm like, look, this thing will do my job for me. Like, this right. is really good. <laughs> There's more in here than you will ever use and need. So you're fine. Right. Cause I've tried, I've tried doing like extensive research on things, but most things that I try and find are either extremely Westernized and not exactly what I'm looking for. So it's kind of just like that. Oh, this is tied to this chakra. And I, and since I read the article that I was talking about earlier, I know that it has nothing to do with that chakra. You know what I mean? Uh And so I'm sitting here and I'm like, well, now I can't, I can't believe what you're saying because you're tying something that it doesn't necessarily fully correlate. So I I can't trust you. And then everything I can't find because I I try and use Google for a lot of things because I don't really know much other like search tools, I guess, for these types of things. Um, There is a better tool than Google. Please tell me. (laughs) Yeah. Your intuition and your own heart. It will take you where you need to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sorry for the disappointment. <laughs> but yeah, I know it's like... I completely agree. I completely 100%. What article were you talking about before, Sean, that you mentioned? Sorry. What? Can you say that again? Sorry. 
you mentioned you, the article you mentioned. You said some. Oh, okay. you mentioned an article before, and I have it saved on my phone. Let me pull it's it up. From Christopher Wallace, yes. Um, I'm not actually 100 percent sure. Yes, Casey. Good luck at work tomorrow. It was really good to see you. Uh, feel free to hit me up with any questions anytime. I don't know if you're on TikTok with me, but feel free to like DM me or anything. And uh, a lot of these lectures I do based on what questions you ask. So if there's anything that you need to know, I'll be here. Awesome. Good night, y'all. Good night, Casey. Good night, Casey from Kentucky. Bye-bye. It's called The Real Story of the Chakras, and it's on... Harish.org. Yes. His name is Christopher Wallace, and he is the writer of Tantra Illuminated. Okay. I did not know that. So oh, I think okay. Same person. Yes. Okay. Harish okay. Wallace. That's his name. Um, he, he goes by Harish. His name is Christopher Wallace. Definitely follow his, his Instagram and get his book because I think he's such an important voice. And I've gotten so much inspiration from Christopher because this was a tradition I was raised in. But- right. Christopher Wallace's work brought like an academic scholarly rigor to it that I'm completely indebted to him for, you know? So one of my mentors, if you go on my YouTube page and you scroll down at the bottom, you'll see a subheading called my teachers on it. You'll see Sarva Priyananda from Vedanta, New York. You'll see Freder Xavier from mind and magic. And you'll see Christopher Wallace from Tantrika Institute. He's in Portugal. Now you can go do a program with him. He does like retreats, (laughs) Portugal. Something that I want to do is like travel. So like I, I'm a cosmetology student. I want to be a barber and hair colorist and uh, extensions for specifically like textured hair. But that's more along the lines of the, 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 what's the word, the, the social construct thing. But honestly, I just want to travel everywhere and learn as much as I can. And like how you said with, um, I forgot who it was, how he kept getting enlightened over and over and over again. I feel like that's something that I, I that's something that I'm going to have to do because I know that I, I kind of have those like back and forth. So a little bit sometimes, but it, yeah. I don't know, I'll, as much as I can people as I can about all the traditions and everything and, and all of that, I find it so interesting. I feel that. Sean, check out the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. I think you'll dig it. It's a very powerful spiritual text and uh, it's particularly high frequency for those with ears. Let them hear. So check that do one. You, do you know where I could get it? Because I'm going to look it up on Amazon, but I don't know. Yeah, you can get it on Amazon. Sure. All right. But- All right. Wow, Roxanne, you're up late today. You're just cruising. <laughs> I'm making... Yeah, I, I, um, this is, oh, yeah, yeah, it keeps, it keeps me going. Wow. Yeah. You do ceramics? Yeah. Oh, cool. I'm very lucky because I get to sit with such a accomplished artist, you know, poets and dancers and ceramic maker. It's just nice. What kind of ceramics do you make? Right on the finishing cuts. That's so cool. Like, do you... I got this... Let me see if I can find it. (laughs) I got this one. 
from a thrift store yesterday. Um, Beautiful. Oh, I wanted, nice. Lucky. Yeah, I wanted to, I found this one on Etsy that I wanted to get that has like, like it's, it's, it's extremely multicolored on the inside and everything. Do you make like very like basic nude colors or do you 